Um, so last week we were talking about um, previously, previously on <laughs> Saturday Night <Movie> Sleepovers, <laughs> Ronnie's pregnant, <laughs> Janie's dead. Maybe they should be turn those names around. Um, last week we were doing um, Karate Kid, the ca- the. The karate kid. The ka- karate kid. And we brought up, um, what did we bring up? We brought up sidekicks, and then we brought up uh, the De Palma movie Wise Guys. Uh-huh. So a couple weeks ago in my day job, uh, Joe Piscopo was hanging out in the green room. And I'm like, Joe Piscopo, whoa! And I've been seeing him for like, I think I've said this a couple times on the podcast. I see him occasionally. So he kind of has that relationship with me who we know. Hey, he's like, hey, guy. But, you know, he doesn't know my name. Yeah, yeah. And then he'll, he'll know my name by the end of the time he's there, but then he'll forget it by the next time I see him six months. So I go in and, you know, I'm chatting with him, getting him ready to bring him on set. And I leave. And then I suddenly think about, hey, we were just talking about wise guys in the last podcast we did. And I'm always trying to get him to come on, sleep yeah, over, yeah. but it's hard to get a guy to, you know. <laughs> get a guy like Joe yeah, Piscopo to come Piscopo's, over and sleep over yeah, at one Joe, of our parents' house. Yeah, Joe Piscopo's in his, you It'll know, be fun. Come over. Yeah. We'll crack open a bucket of pizza. It'll be a couple, you know, <laughs> come over to the coast, have a couple laughs, you know. And, and, and you know, who knows if one of our have moms are going to hit on You know, I don't want my mom hitting on Joe Piscopo, you know, and he's, you know, he's got to be pushing 60 now, so it's, <clears> it is a decision to go over two grown men's houses yes. for a sleepover, and you got to get a sleeping bag, so. I also know... Uh, I mean, Wise Guys would be a good one. But the truth is, if we were going to have Joe Piscopo sleep over, you know what movie we would do. Yeah, well, that's why we're going to push it together. <laughs> yeah. We would do Dead Heat. We would do Dead Heat. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we'd do his Star Trek Next Generation episode. <laughs> well, we could do that, too. Well, you'd have to bonus. get them all together. we do John and Dangerously. we do Wise Guys. we do Dead We're going <laughs> to really? knock them all out. <laughs> <laughs> really make them work for yeah. it. Marathon. It's like, guys. <laughs> you hear us hitting the eject on the video, taking the VCR tape out. <laughs> Sorry. Like, I don't want to watch all these movies, guys. <laughs> Joe, Joe, give me the give me the remote, Joe. <laughs> fix the track. Fix it, fix the track. It's starting. It's starting. So uh so we were talking about wise guys. So I said, you know, all my life I've always been a fan of that movie and, and I didn't know anybody except growing up around me who knew that movie. But it's always stuck with me. There's a really famous line in it where um, wise guys, uh, not to go through what it's about, but the, but him and Danny DeVito are in it, Harvey Keitel, um, Joe, what's the guy's name from Joe vs. the Volcano? That we, that was, you know, he's got the cleft in his chin. From, Tom Hanks. No, Commando. <laughs> the bad guy in Commando. That guy, you know, he's, he's the head dictator of that country. Anyway, he's in it. Yeah. And... Um, Let's see. He was on Cheers, right? Yes, him. He was the he was the boyfriend or something. He was the white husband husband of what's her face, Danny DeVito's wife, right? Yeah, yeah. In real life, he's in it as a mob boss, and Lou Albano is in it as like Frank the Fixer. He's called Frank the Fixer Aquamano. So the plot goes that they bumble something up. It's a comedy. They steal. Uh, Frank the Fixer's car and his credit cards and shoot from Newark because we brought up because we're talking about that's where they leave in Karate Kid last week Mm -hmm. and they go to AC Atlantic City to hide out and that's where the movie takes place the the, the climax so when they get to AC they start charging it it becomes this great little um, montage they're charging stuff and they keep saying thank you Mr. Aquamano and they're getting new suits new jackets new you know brand new hotel room. That's the whole, thank you, Mr. Aquamano. So I used to say that all my life, but no one knew it. So I said, you know what? I stopped in my tracks. I go, I'm going to turn around and go back to Joe Piscopo. I'm going to say, thank you, Mr. Aquamano. So I walk back in there and I go, hey, Joe, you know what's on my mind? He goes, what? I go, thank you, Mr. Aquamano. And he's like, oh my God. He goes, you, you can't, I can't tell you how many times I hear that. I go, really? <laughs> he goes, I'm walking down the street. People yell that to me. I go, really? I go, I thought I was the only one. He goes, 
He's like, last week I had a guy want to take a picture with me. He took his credit card out and told me to hold it. I go, he goes, and Joe says, why do you want me to hold it? He goes, because I want you to say thank you, Mr. <laughs> so I was all happy. I was like, oh, I thought I was the only one, you know. And then he started telling me about he was on a Star Trek cruise because he did the Star Trek episode. And with Interesting. Yeah, he went. He did a recent, and he, 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 him and Bill Shatner, and he said, you know, because I was telling him how good the convention scene is. And he's like, you know, his agent's telling him to do it. He's like, who's going to want to come see me? I was like, people going to want to talk to you about sidekicks, dead heat, yeah, <laughs> Johnny yeah. Dangerously, that crazy Bud Light commercial that scared the shit out of me. So I was trying to get him to, you know. But one of these days, I hope he's going to sleep over here. And uh, that'll be, we'll be thanking Mr. Aquilano in person. We kidnap. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be our version of uh, <laughs> the king of comedy. You know, <laughs> we kidnap <laughs> yeah, Joe Pisco. <laughs> that's a drag her into the basement. That's like a '90s indie movie, the, you know. Podcast. Yeah, he's he's like wrapped up in a chair. It's like search for one eye Jimmy, and then like, you leave, and I start like taking my clothes off. <laughs> Do you really want to <laughs> make him watch his movies with us? Yeah. and then we can talk about them? yeah doing Frank Sinatra impressions. Do it. So, but anyway, we're we're it's brisk, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, you're beautiful. Um, so we. A month ago had our anniversary. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We're not doing wise guys. <laughs> or anything re- related to Joe Piscopo. But I figured I'd get that out of the way before it became too um, cumbersome to uh, bring up in the middle of the podcast. But um, we had our we had our month. A uh, month ago, we had our 20th anniversary of us being friends. We did Predator. Mm-hmm. And now we're back. We did Karate Kid two weeks ago. Now we're back on our... We did our back-to-school episode. That was, yeah, Karate Kid. But not movie back-to-school. Not to school. school. <laughs> One day we'll do back-to-school. Not to be confused with summer school. That'll be pretty cool to do. Start to start the summer out with summer school mm-hmm. and then end it with... Uh, back-to-school. Back-to-school. <laughs> and then maybe we can get something else in there, some other like summer school license to drive or... Summer camp movie. Summer camp. Yeah, we can do summer camp with Ernest Goes to Camp. We got our summer plan out. Of summer. We could do like a whole summer of summer camp movies. Oh, you're yeah, right. Do like uh, sleepaway camp, meatballs, meatballs, uh, sleepaway camp, meatballs two, Friday the thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth, uh, the burning. There's more burning. Yeah, the there's burning. We could do all sleep. I'm sleep sure there's break. other like kid. Wet hot American summer. Yeah, I'm sure there's like kid summer movies, like like teenage angst ones, as opposed to just either horror. or... Oh, yeah. Sure. There's got to be like some coming of age ones yeah. in there, too, not just goofy comedies. <laughs> That's what I mean. There's got to be a medium there. You know, so maybe we could, we could start to explore <laughs> Do a, whole, a summer of summer camp. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going back to camp. Yeah. That okay. would be exciting. We'll meet you on the bus. How, I wonder how quickly you and I, and especially our listeners, would get sick of that theme. Probably right after Ernest goes to camp. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now we're doing next week. We're doing Second week of July. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. Well, the thing is, only doing it every two weeks. It's really only like four yeah. episodes. That's true. Four or six episodes. So we're not really depending uh, on when we start the summer. Yeah, if we're going by Memorial Day Labor Day rules. Um, so that ends up being yeah. Well, we have so much. That's the issue. I mean, we have luckily we we have a lot of listeners now, and we're starting to get we you know our our dumbasses in the beginning were like we want to hear requests, and now we get a lot of requests, <laughs> and it's hard because we're so regimented. We only do two. Uh, weeks a month aside from the halloween and the occasional surprise so it's hard to add in and then when we plan it out you know yeah it's crazy it's, it's just crazy talk <laughs> it's just crazy to add more movies and then all this stuff get, that's going we get a lot we get a lot of really great requests too movies i know that we're like oh yeah like we're gonna get Didn't to even it. Do that. yeah but like we always say 
So many great movies. So little time. So little time. Yeah. And we're here this week with a great movie for our our inaugural. This is, we're celebrating our third anniversary. Yes. As a podcast. As a podcast. As Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers is celebrating its third anniversary today. Yeah. Uh, Past, our our first episode was The Punisher. Yes. Dolph Lundgren. Our inaugural episode. Which we, we had a little... Tied to last week with Karate Kid because it was the same writer. Yes, Cayman. And then our first anniversary yes. was the epic Batman, <laughs> Batman episode. Batman. <laughs> yes, where we put our lives on the line. Yes, and we actually so much so that we had to have um, our HR department in legal call down and said, "Before you release this episode, you better put a disclaimer in there because you're put you're eating asbestos cereal, so asbestos <laughs> filled cereal." Yeah, who knew? Uh, so we, we had to put a disclaimer in there. We put our life on the line, and so we did a four-hour Batman episode. Yeah, that was our first, like, really... It was like, that was push. That was like, we knocked the, the floodgates yeah, open. Yeah, we kicked in the doorway Because we, we had our podcast for you guys who haven't gone back yet to listen to the earlier. Yeah, way down the alley. It used alley. to be like an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> and we thought we were... We were by that time, we thought <laughs> we were like... like too long? <laughs> yeah. And then we did Batman, and that was like three and a half. <laughs> the floodgates opened. And, it just and then the... we've never been able to reel it back in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of us will... It was, sometimes we even take naps in the podcast while the other one talks, just nod off. <laughs> And I'm like, <laughs> uh, and then we did Batman. So then yep. we we're like, okay, Punisher was our first movie. It was a comic book movie. Batman was a comic book movie, but started to get with the stylistic. And that was coincidental. We talked about, we did that because that was the watermark for us, like people, yeah. the generation before. I mean, it was an epic, I mean, it was an epic podcast, but it was an epic movie. moment yeah, in time exactly. for our generation. It's for people, the generation before us, how Star Wars was for them. Was, you, yeah. you remember before, you remember after. So we kind of put our foot down and said, this is how Batman was for our generation before or after. And then when we came around to our second anniversary, we were like, hey, that was pretty cool how we did the comic book theme. Yeah. So Plus, Batman was getting a little more into like a, uh, a pulp, like a pulpy, not uh, just the character, but also the movie. Yeah, serial. That, like, that timeless. Yeah. Retro. Warner Brothers, 30s, kind of like, uh, you know, adventure, action adventure guy that was born out of the 30s so that's when we're like well and uh so we decided that we would do another movie that was uh very important to us was rocketeer yeah because we always thought that there's not a big following for Rocketeer. well there's a cult following but it doesn't get to do it should yeah since it came well, out we, we've done a, like we did we should have saved dick tracy for an anniversary we should have saved Dick tracy but we didn't yeah we, we jumped we the gun that, on out. that one that was that was big mid-year <laughs> dick tracy episode. yeah and that came out before rocketeer <laughs> that 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 tickled the brim for some people and i uh, thought it's even a term <laughs> we're inventing term. tickled the brim or tickling the brim <laughs> the brim or whatever i, I don't like know. it i'm gonna yeah. start using or that tickled the brim tickled the brim yeah, especially if you have a mustache <laughs> it's really tickling <laughs> yeah, right there just gonna tickle the brim a little bit with this anecdote <laughs> yeah right there just, just gonna wet the forceps that's another one. <laughs> gonna wet the forceps with you okay with this little and, uh, so that, that one's a little gross yeah because uh, for me, tickling a brim, I think of the hat of a hat. Oh, I'm thinking of something completely. See, Dion's got all. Dion's got all. His mind goes in the gutter. Yeah, all the time. Mine's like a guy with. We're doing the Indiana Jones. He's, He's got, got a, a fedora. Yeah. You know, tickling the brim. <laughs> exactly. I'm, never mind. Um, so and, we uh, did. So we do Rocketeer. We did Dick Tracy, and then we do Rocketeer later on that year, which yes. was last year. And then we did, and that was another epic. 
for both reasons because it was our also anniversary. somewhere in the middle there even though it's not really a superhero movie but we got we got deep into pulp fiction not the movie pulp fiction but like pulp literary liter- literary fiction with the tarzan episode. yes we did and that was the same year right we did dick tracy and then we, <laughs> we really you know got kind of stuck in there and uh i mean we've done other we did like the fantastic four we did the hulk we've done yeah but there's Daredevil. been other comic yeah book movies, but we're, but we're in terms with the of foot in the pulp of like uh like period pulp yeah but uh so we were trying to decide what we we're going to do this year and, and we, we were like, should we go off kilter? Yeah, should we pick something completely different, go completely different uh, direction, or should we keep it with another comic book movie or a pulp movie? And then, or do something we just like that we kind of like how Predator was that it was special to us when the, when it first came out. Uh, uh, and we decided. <laughs> to take on the impossible feat. <laughs> yes. We, we didn't realize Last until... minute. Yeah. <laughs> Less than a week ago. Like, you know what we should do? Let's do the most iconic movie we've done to date. Yeah, all with time. absolutely no time to prepare for it. <laughs> right in the middle of both of our day jobs, completely overwhelming us, where we have to cry in the corner every night when we get home or in the shower. <laughs> the worst possible timing I've had since we've been doing this show. No. Let's do the most iconic movie we've done. And we're going to do, uh, continuing with a pulp serial yeah. type theme, getting a, a little bit away, although I'm sure there have been comic books based on Indiana Jones, but getting away from the straight-up comic book characters, we're going to dive into more of a pulp serial uh, adaptation yeah. from 1981, the iconic Raiders of the Lost Ark. dun 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 dun, dun. <laughs> Yes. Um, and, you know, it's if you think about it, it is basically, um, I mean, obviously, but it's like, you know, you think a Rocketeer was is, is a movie that's not the character Rocketeer is from the mid-'80s created by, I forget the gentleman's name who did Rocketeer. Yeah. Stevenson, maybe. Go listen to the Rocketeer. Yeah, list. he'll know, because it, it's all, my mind's a bunch of mush. Yeah, these hard drives in our heads can only fit so much yeah, information. Yeah, it was, it was, we're all, we all, we're we all just to, working off a of DOS. We have to clean, we have to reformat the hard drive yeah. every, at every anniversary. Yeah, just lose everything. For the next year. Yeah, and the floppy disks, <laughs> we can't fit them anymore because they don't work. It's archived. Um... So uh, I think it's Stevenson, maybe. But that character's from the mid-'80s with a graphic novel and that Bugatta Disney movie in the early 90s. But this character also is, you know, uh, you think of him, you think he's from back then, but, you know, he was created in the late-'70s to do a 1981 movie. So it's kind of the same fare there where Batman was a a character that was created back then, lived back then, had the experience of 50 years until 89. Same with Dick Tracy. Same with Dick Tracy. Was, uh, I think, created earlier than Batman, maybe early 30s, had 50 years or so until 1990. So this is our fourth movie, kind of, where we do two bona fide, often Tarzan would would be the fifth where that is from back in the day, Edgar Rice Burroughs, yeah. uh, the teens maybe, I think. And then we did a movie 60 years later. Mm-hmm. So we did three movies that our, are our, our, original. Is that only? Is that like, well, I guess, I mean, Falling Down is a bit of a drama. But also it was like the Tarzan. Where'd you did, get Falling Down from? Well, I'm trying to think of like <laughs> Greystoke. Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, has the longest title yep. of the movies we've done so far. <laughs> But it's also like a straight-up drama, which we don't do very often. 
You know, I, wouldn't be like the Breakfast Club be like a drama? Yeah, I guess. But I mean, I think people when they think of Breakfast Club think of it as being like an eighties comedy. Oh yeah. But you're right; it's definitely more of a drama. But like <clears throat> the Tarzan episode, the Greystoke episode for us is like a, a very cool anomaly. Yeah. In the in the archives of in yeah. the annals <laughs> as we like to say <laughs> of Saturday Night Night sleepovers and that it's like a straight up costume drama like Academy Award nominated but it's well. very us though when you take the oh, first same, layer yeah. off yeah it's very I mean it's got it's, the Highlander in it yeah it's very uh, and gritty. it's also plays to the, our mutual interests of like historic pulp fiction and um, uh, and it's got and yeah it's a story I, in the, in the, I mean yeah. look as we know Especially if you've listened to that episode. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. A lot of people don't know is before this podcast started, Blake used to be contractually obligated to mention Christopher Lambert, but then that <laughs> lapsed. And then suddenly uh, you had the 21 Stephen, Jump Street. The Stephen J. Canal people contacted yeah. us. Yeah, and then so Blake jumped at the bit, and then he had a higher lucrative deal, so now he's contractually obligated, obligated to talk about 21 Jump Street. Yes. And check that off. now even doing a 21 Jump Street podcast on yes. the side. Yeah, with with the great little Michael Vanderbilt. Piece. Yeah, a little side piece. <laughs> you know, the side piece, side cast. 21 Pod Street. Yeah. Check it out. Uh, yeah, and we're and, and full disclosure, we are completely, uh, it's 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 late on a Saturday, Sunday morning, Saturday night, so yes. we're already loopy. We're loopy. We drank, we fell asleep, we've woken up, we've had coffee, and now we're coming on the cusp again yeah birds so, are chirping birds are chirping uh i'm thinking even maybe starting to drink again we're in the basement and so all we have is the, like that little rectangular window that looks out <laughs> you know up towards the ceiling that's yeah. looking out the ground level and then it's in the it's, backyard people are going to start mowing the lawn here are the sprinklers going on yeah and it's not you know and, and it's it's uh about a foot or so down so it's that little you have to look up to look at the grass and then yeah. that window's never clean so there's like bits of <laughs> Grass bits, you know, and then there's spider webs and there's, you know, crickets and stuff. It's creating a shaft of light, much like the map room. Well, we've got a, (laughs) we we took my mom's mop handle and we've got that on and we're going to hopefully, we've done out of, out of constructs, Legos, place toys, place, what are these things called? Play toys? Place toys. Play toys. You know, those ones they're like poor man's, they were like the rich man's Legos when you were little play, play school, play toys, you know, the plate that they, they're like this. You know? Oh yeah, the little guys. Yeah, the guys. The, it was it was the rich man. Like you can get Legos, you can get these guys, but they're always really expensive. We got them all set up, and we're gonna try to we're gonna reenact. We figure we might need visual aids for the truck sequence, <laughs> <laughs> so we may take some pictures with. Yeah, Blake brought I mean, his camera. By the over. end of the episode, the sun should be at the right point. We're gonna end the episode. Hopefully, we'll have the timing just right with a with with the shaft of a yeah. beam of light. Lighting up the map room as we close out the sun. We'll yeah, see if we we see if we can pull it off. We took my dad's. Um, uh, he worked for Metro North for forty years. Got a watch, so he's sleeping. We took the watch, the, the crystal, the crystal <laughs> off the watch. <laughs> we we uh, we should have taken it off his wrist. Yeah, we should have. Yeah, but we didn't. Uh, instead, <laughs> a painstaking. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, while he's sleeping in bed. <laughs> And then you're, you're you're trying to be quiet, and you're working off the snore. So you start working, then you stop. You start working, then you stop. So we've got the mop handle up with the thing. We got some gaff. We got gaff. We got duct tape, and we got the crystal. And hopefully, I don't even know if we can get an angle through this window because it's so dirty. Yeah, I mean, there's a house next door. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> we didn't really think about <laughs> what position of if this is east or west. This could be the south side of the house. So. Shit. Yeah. Move, the, move everything. Yeah, we got to move, move, move it to the other, other side. Down to the unfinished part. So we're all ready to go. We all right. Be, and um, so Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, like I said, probably the most iconic film we've done so far if we take away the significance of Star Wars and the Star Wars Holiday Special. That and then probably maybe Batman too, if we take Batman out of the equation. But I would say even, I would say uh, on a whole, yeah, it's more, Raiders Lost Ark probably hits a wider spectrum. Batman for our generation, for sure. But uh, Maybe the staying value too, because Batman, you have the Batman Returns, but then you have the reboots. Yeah, yeah. So now it's its own entity, but people still look at Raiders as the movie that started this all where yeah. I think people our age could say that as Batman but then I'm sure there's an argument to be made where people are like no that's Tim Burton's Batman sucks and Nolan's <laughs> poppycock yeah Joel Schumacher's is the best you know <laughs> nipples on the Batman we've mentioned it in a previous episode and I can't imagine which one it was unless maybe it was Gremlins because this is our first Spielberg movie too right this is Spielberg our Spielberg directed movie. first Spielberg directed movie but a lot of the people in this oddly has a lot of um uh, I guess know. we're just going to be finding that more and more. Yeah, we we're going to we're going to find out as we do our research. There's a lot of like uh, spider cracks that that touch other movies that connections we don't even realize. Really, like real like sub even subconscious connections, like with uh, Ralph McQuarrie coming on here, which yeah. didn't do as much work, but he's in here, and we we talked about him in the Star Wars holiday special. And we yeah. talked about him recently, uh, the Robert. Uh, uh, Edlund, who we talked about on the Ghostbusters. We were just talking about him oh, like a Richard. month ago. Richard Edlund, I'm sorry. Uh, the special effects guy. Uh, a lot He's of He's come up a couple of times, including yeah. Predator, because his company was the original company hired to do the first Predator suit. But we talked about him in, in Ghostbusters. Um, maybe Gremlins? Maybe maybe Gremlins. I mean, he came up. he's come up. That summer, he came up more than once. Yeah. The summer uh, of, of Ghostbusters. And we also did summer, uh, we did, uh, what's the name of that? Summer Rental. So maybe he did all the this, this special effects <laughs> for Summer Rental. The, the special effects heavy movie, yeah. Summer Rental. With the lobsters. He, he might have done something. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do want to say, and I, like I said, I think this has come up before. Uh, I don't remember which episode. Is that Dion and I went to film school uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. We entered film school. We touched upon that in the Predator podcast, 97. And uh, we talk a lot about film school in our Reservoir Dogs podcast. Yes. Um, Which was also this year, six months ago or so. Or earlier this year. Uh, but something that I don't know if it's still a thing, but at the time in our in our youth, in our, our youths. Our youths. <laughs> uh, when we got to film school, the film school we went to was particularly arty. I would say. Yeah. So oh. much so I would throw up in my mouth if I went there now. But at the time, you don't know that. You're like, oh, you know, it was before people to had, like coined hipsters and all that. So it was very, you know, uh, people, yeah, like they were all into the arts and stuff. Yeah. And trendy, you know. So uh, when we went to school, there was a big like anti-Spielberg sentiment. Mm. Uh, I think people, we were coming off the things like Schindler's List and... Amistad. Yeah, and Saving Private Ryan had just come out. Because I remember that was a, a particular note of contention one day in the classroom. People were talking about that narrative arc in, in, in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. So there was this big, like, anti... And it wasn't even like he sold out. It was like people just thought he was overrated and kind of shitty. And 
even like you even if you brought up like Jaws, people would argue about Jaws, which to me it's like Jaws is one of the greatest movies ever made. I mean, I would put my personally in terms of like movie actual movie not enjoyment factor, but in terms of like great movie all around, technical, all that stuff, I would put top I would put Jaws top 10, maybe even top 5. I think we have talked a, a lot since we haven't officially done a Spielberg movie yet. We've talked a lot about the genius of Spielberg by way of using other people to direct movies he wanted to do yeah. or he'll just kind of like uh sublet it out to somebody else, subcontract it, but then he'd have final say over everything. Yeah, yeah. So he'll he'll it's basically his move, like Gremlins. You know, Joe Dante does it, but he's over, he's over his shoulder. You know, and that's the genius of maybe you know we talked about that a little bit in the Batman the Animated Series because in the late nineties or late eighties he was doing animated stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I well, guess Roger we should, Rabbit. Roger Rabbit was huge because you know he was right there with um, what's his face uh, Robert uh, Zemeckis. You know, so he's always the like he's doing here with Lucas. He's always there with somebody a big heavyweight, either. Directing, co-directing, executive producing, or having a very heavy creative writing input or something in there. And kind of where I'm going with the story is that even Jaws would get uh, ridiculed a little bit. Which to me, I don't, I couldn't understand how anybody would really attack Jaws. Do you remember anything? But the one movie that nobody could ever argue with. The one movie where that would shut them up the minute they started talking shit about Spielberg, I would say, "What about Raiders of the Lost Ark?" And I was like, "Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> give him one. He can have you that know, one." It, the, the power of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the greatness of Raiders of the Lost Ark is undeniable. Yeah, but the, everybody likes Raiders of the Lost Ark. I feel like Ark. people used to always like um, Close Encounters too. People used to always have. I don't huge... remember ever really talking about Close Encounters. Okay. I just do remember that anytime anybody would start badmouthing uh, Spielberg, I would say Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and they'd be like, oh, "All right, <laughs> because um, touche, motherfucker." <laughs> yeah, touche, bitch. This because as of this recording, there's a huge re-release of Close Encounters in the theater, like a 4K restoration print and all that kind of thing and people I know for years have been and that's a movie I haven't seen nearly as much as these other ones um, but I know there's a huge affinity for that back yeah there's then. also like a million different cuts of it now it yeah it's confusing which one should I watch yeah I don't know what the heck's going on there but I but see and then I, I don't know it seems like a lot of people back then were you know because it was that time in your life but also the time in, in film that people were like you know it was during the independent movement people were looking at like Jim Jarmusch's, Jim Jarmusch's, and Hal Hartley's, and these people who didn't really get a lot of, uh, you know, mainstream kind of look. So people were then forsaking their idols in the past and just, you know, yeah. having them fall on their swords and saying, "Well, they suck because they're main, just because they're mainstream," you know. Yeah, yeah. And they used to annoy the shit. I mean, I've prided myself of never going down that road. I've always like, "Fuck it, I I want to make movies." It's like, you know, when you watch, like, like you know. Uh, I remember the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. That was the first movie out of college. You and I always talk about it was really hard for us going to college and film school and learning how to dissect movies. And then it's almost like you have a PTSD where you, for the next couple of years, you you can't watch a movie without yeah, yeah. just for, and Pirates in 2003 was the first movie I was able to just forget all that slip in and be like, this is a fun, this is why I want to make movies. This is, you know, that kind of loving it's an adventure, you know? It's like these big epics, like a Raiders, like a Batman, you know, that you can get swept away in the story and the fun and the love. And you walk out with a step in your stride and you got a smile on your face. And like, that's fun, you know? And it's, it was hard back then that people would just want to badmouth people like, you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, 
people would badmouth Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, all the big people, you know, and it and even Hitchcock would get shit on, and it's like yeah, yeah, it was a lot of know, stupid kids didn't know anything, you know, and I but I used to be like, no, I like what I like, you know, yeah, yeah, I don't think I mean I don't think I necessarily I mean I started to gravitate towards different filmmakers, of course, but I don't think I ever shit on anybody that I used to like, yeah, uh, music wise either. Like, I still listen to some of the same stuff that I listened to then, where I used to have friends that would, whatever was the next thing, they would listen to that, and then everything they used to listen to was kind of crap. They throw it out. It's like, but that's kind of the ignorance of youth, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, my point is only that Raiders of the Lost Ark is kind of undeniable. Uh, I don't know anybody that doesn't appreciate Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as far as Spielberg goes... I wonder if there are people out there. If there is, like, yeah, a, let I'm us sure know. there are. I would like to know. If yeah. They, if, 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 if like, people eh, think it's flawed, and it's okay. You know, I mean, because I guess you can make that argument for any of the other sure, Indiana Jones I mean, movies. You know, I just, I've never come across anybody. Doesn't mean they don't exist. I, I don't know. I don't think I, do, I have either. Anybody that, you know. Uh, and one thing I'll say about Spielberg, and, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it more with uh, the movie specifically, is. To me, uh, so this is just a personal opinion, I think there are very few filmmakers that really understand or as fluent as Spielberg is in the language of cinema. The way to tell a story cinematically. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other filmmakers that don't make better films or filmmakers that I like better than Spielberg. Like, I certainly like John Carpenter more than I like Steven Spielberg. John Carpenter just is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, filmmaker. And as and as talented and a craftsman and a storyteller and a filmmaker as Carpenter is, there's just something about the way Spielberg tells a story cinematically. The shots that are chosen, the way it's edited, that it's just... Almost perfection. Well, I wonder like if his dialect of cinematic is the cleanest. I wonder if it's also who he's surrounding himself. Oh, with. and that, that, well, that's part of you know the heavy you know, that's hitters. Part he's of being in. a film. That's part of being a filmmaker is knowing who to surround yourself with. And he happened to have a lot of success pretty early on. So uh, that's the thing that I think it's I, I watching all the researching this and you know checking out all the you know bells and whistles on these new deluxe edition blu-rays of these movies is the all the special features and you forget raiders is 81 prior to that he did uh 1941 which was which is really the only movie that kind of is that bombed other movies haven't done as well but 41 bombed yeah and then prior to that is close encounters and then you have uh i'm sure he's done other maybe little things then he did jaws and then he did was that the sugar land express well, he did yeah and amblin and sugar land express and, and then he, he did smaller did, stuff yeah yeah the, then he did duel and then he did some tv stuff like he did like an episode of uh, uh jaws Night was such a jog yeah well that's what i mean so it's like he's only did like a handful of movies you know he's kind of like a Tarantino in a way he didn't have like 30 movies under his belt yeah he, but each movie he, he did duel duel was a success success for what it was a great tv movie it was a great Richard Matheson plot and got released overseas as yeah. a theatrical movie it still holds <laughs> up if you watch a good movie Dennis Weaver's awesome in it then you have uh you know the next movie maybe it's Sugar Land Express Sugar uh, is it? 
Um, <laughs> Perhaps. I have, and then you got Jaws. There certainly would have been a time when I would have been able, I would yeah. have been able to tell you exactly, all, uh, like the years of all these movies. Yeah, and then, but that was a long time ago. And then Jaws comes out, and Jaws is a you know, phenomenal movie. I don't know what you call I mean, is Jaws a horror movie? Is Jaws a beach movie? Is Jaws a thriller? You know, I mean, yeah, it could be yeah. all of the above, you know? And then you have Close Encounters. That's held up for uh, people who UFO, UFO people and stuff like that, you know, and that has a great epicness about it. And then even 1941 is really a cult classic for people, a very a satiristic view of the World War II and people and stuff. And then you get to Raiders, and it's just like, you know, and then his connections with all the people at the time, you know, he knows, you know, John Landis, he knows uh, uh, yeah, George Lucas, he knows everybody's working back together. Then. It was like Coppola you know, and De Palma, and they were all Scorsese, like they're all, I mean, I would love to see if somebody could dig up a picture of like, like the Untouchables, them around the table. And I'm, sure, you know I'm I mean? sure I've seen, maybe not around a table, but you definitely see pictures of at least three or four of Yeah, them just all hanging out, you know, and it's, and it's just like, and, and it's just movie magic, and then they come up with these these ideas. And, uh, I mean, some, and it's funny because some of our best classic properties now, uh, American or international properties, are these properties that Lucas and Spielberg thought up because they just wanted to do an extension of the serials that you and I love or other people love growing up, like the pulp stuff, you know? Nostalgia, which is why we do this podcast. Yeah, and it's just them like, you know, they want to do this, and they're like, well, let's, instead of trying to find someone we can remake or, or, or we can reinvigor, let's just create our own character. You know, they wanted to do a Buck Rogers or, or, or Flash Gordon, and instead they did Star Wars. Yeah, you well, know? a lot of that, you know, you hear a lot of things of the reason why that occurs is they can't, <clears throat> they can't, they often can't get the property that they, they can't get the, the rights, rights to the yeah, property. Yeah, yeah. So, like... Lucas kind of really wanted to just do a Flash Gordon movie, but since he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, he Fuck decided it. to do Star Wars. He'll do his own. Uh, Spielberg really wanted to do a James Bond movie, but because he couldn't do a James Bond movie, Lucas is like, screw James Bond, I got this idea. And that's how Raiders of the Lost Ark came about. Uh, but the thing about Lucas, I mean, about um, Spielberg is, I mean, this movie's kind of full of it. It's just like perfect, perf- perfection on like a cinematic level in terms of storytelling. And like I said, uh, for me, the one that came to mind, the one thing that comes to mind and it, and it's just, it's the moment that I had like the revelation that like, wow, Spielberg really knows how to tell a story in a movie. And it doesn't have to do with Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it was like that moment that <laughs> I recognized it. Yeah. It's in Jurassic Park and it's the sequence where they have to like reboot the system to get like the power back on. And at the same time, Sam deals with the kids, and they're going to go over the electric fence. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're going to whiz on the electric fence. Yeah. <laughs> Don't whiz on the electric fence. <laughs> and what is it? Samuel Jackson or yeah, somebody? Yeah, he's in there. Hey, goes he's... into the yeah, generator room. And they have to pump the thing, and then the, pa- and then the camera, like pans down. It's like, and then each system is going to boot up separately. And then the pan, the camera, like, pans down, like, ten things to see, like, the electric fence, like, the security fence. Yeah. And, like, I literally laughed out loud. This was a couple years ago. It was on TV. Like, I literally chuckled because it was so perfect. Yeah. It was, like, the suspense textbook in the, yeah, almost. Yeah. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that a viewer, or like, a typical viewer, a layman, might not even notice. But to see, like, like the way that shot, the order of the shots, the rhythm... And then just like, just for shits and giggles, like this pan down all the different systems that have to come up to show you that 
you have this X amount of time. The peril. Till the, <laughs> the, the fence nope. goes on. Yeah. I was like, like nobody would have done it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's more to the fact that in, what is it, 2014, Steven Soder- Soderbergh? Soder- mm-hmm. Soder- what's his name? Soderbergh. Yeah, he released Raiders black and white with no with some sort of weird uh, alternate soundtrack with no dialogue just to prove your point of the mise-en-scene of the cinema. Mm-hmm. Look at his cuts, look at his beats, look at his structure. You know, you could see how he's holding stuff and how he's doing things and, you know, that kind of a thing. And you can see all that in the first five minutes of this movie in terms of just like that opening sequence where he's going to go get the idol out of the tomb or the cave or whatever. Yeah. And all that, just the, the way that's told, uh, just amazing. And some, some of my favorite shots are just, you know, jumping ahead just a little bit. Like the specific shot where Karen Allen is like, uh, like I'm your goddamn partner, and she yeah. holds up the she holds up the amulet. Like just that shot is just like beautiful, and then like the focus puller, like racking, <laughs> working like, his, his keep that day, <laughs> focusing from her to that amulet, like instantly. Well, I noticed that when he's when he's trying to find her in the Cairo sequence. And he, it's a long shot, him running down the hall or the, the alley, and he, and he runs into an extreme close-up of his eyes. And that's a f- focus puller on his keep. And it gets yeah, to an yeah. extreme close-up, and you see his eyes widen, and then the camera pans with him, and he realizes there's there's people with those buckets everywhere over their heads, and he's got to start trying to find which one. But that's another thing where it's just like such a great, you know. and Or even the shot where... She punches him in the face. Oh, great. Towards the camera. Yeah. I mean, it's cliche now. And you forget, that's a ripoff, like, uh, you could say, Pirates, Jack Jack uh, Sparrow, you know? When, yeah. Uh, you know, What's that. I mean? Like, that shot is yeah. kind of cliche. But... The guy getting slapped by the really girl. It really wasn't kind of then. Yeah. Uh, and just, like, all the stuff that Alfred Molina, like, you know... Oh, yeah, Doing yeah, his yeah. fingers as... He's as doing... Indi- he's, he's imitating what he's doing. his fingers yeah. as, you know, just the anticipation. Of, it's all just, like, brilliant stuff. And Spielberg is just kind of, I mean, I don't throw the word genius around very often. There are very few filmmakers that I would say are geniuses. Uh, and I wouldn't put Spielberg in the in a, in a category of genius that I would others. But he has a certain kind of natural inclination that I do think isn't learned. Like, I think it is like instinct. And that instinct, I think, is fueled by his passion for film and everything he's seen, obviously. But there's something about the way he does it that is so specifically him, yet seems so cliche because when you watch it, it's like you can't imagine that anybody else would have done it any different. Like, this is the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hitchcock was that way to a certain extent. Uh, and the reason why I feel like Spielberg's movies especially in his youth, his earlier movies, 70s and 80s, I think are so, and even into the early 90s, I mean, there's stuff that flies, people could argue flies off the rails a little bit, like Hook, for instance, yeah. which I actually like. Hook, yeah, I love Hook. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing that at the movies, and I remember enjoying it when I saw it at the movies. Um, unlike, to again, this is all just personal opinion. Unlike the people of his generation. Uh, I feel like Spielberg had then, and hopefully still does, but especially then, had like a grasp on the whimsy and like the magic 
of movies. Like a remembering of what it was like to be a kid, to like, watch a movie. Like almost breaking the fourth wall like slightly. Not being jaded. And that doesn't say that, that's not to say that like he was better at it than like a guy like Scorsese, who obviously super passionate about film and and the history of film and all that stuff. But it was something about like Spielberg to me, I think the reason why those movies worked so well is like he was in touch with the kid yeah. in him that loved movies in a way that his other people, his other, his peers weren't. Yeah. You know, like clearly De Palma was very in touch with his passion for Hitchcock. Yeah. And like those kinds of movies. But there was, but like you know that that, the thing that he was in touch with, like De Palma was in touch with at that time, he was, was in touch with like an older version of himself yeah. than Spielberg was. Like Spielberg was, seemed like he was really channeling like, the eight to ten year old, twelve year old, little Steven Spielberg it seems, that just loved the magic of movies it, and wanted to wanted to put that on screen for himself for yeah. that his childhood self. So there's like this wonder in Spielberg's movies, even something like Close Encounters, which isn't a kids movie. Yeah, but there is like this wonder or E.T. or something. Yeah, like. well, I mean, E.T. was certainly marketed to kids. Yeah, even though it's incredibly fucked. <laughs> um, I just feel like he was in touch with something that I wish more filmmakers could be in touch with. I feel like which he, is like the childhood nostalgia and the and that love. And 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 something that I think we try to in our own way try to talk about here. I feel like there's um uh I feel like nowadays people have realized that and grasped that and are trying to 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 jump on that niche and refine that a little bit and you kind of yeah. see that with some people but I feel at the time too you had Lucas doing a lot of that too and maybe that's the reason why they were mm-hmm. t- tied at the Simpatico. hip yeah and then they were at the same time they how the development of this movie because certainly Lucas you know uh, when talking about this would say well we're doing it for t- 8 to 10 year olds so we have to keep it like this so we have to you yeah, know. Yeah. so they already have a vision of w- where they want to be and there is an element of the f- the the funness like I was saying, seeing pirates for the first time, or the, you know those movies that you really have a, that you just gush over. You're in the movies and you're like, "This is what it's like being a kid again," or "This is like seeing a movie that you love." Certainly, the Spielberg and the Lucas, maybe with Star Wars, is like you get that. Yeah. You know, that it's the time in cinema where you're in the mid to late '70s, and I'm sure there's tons of movies before that. But you know, it's and fil- filmmakers. You know, we talk about legendary filmmakers. You have John Ford as well. You have a lot of the Western directors or the other people at the time, you know, like um, Howard Hawks or stuff or uh, John Houston or Walter Houston. But when you hit to like the late 70s, you have those guys who were like adding in. Maybe they, the craft has been developed so well, well yeah. that they know that they can, you know, you can, you know, I think there was a big revelation in the mid to late 60s with the, the fall of the studio system of what you can do and what you're able to do and the freedom that was then with the MPAA code or whatever, the, the yeah. Hayes code going away. And then you have that translated <clears throat> into that film generation that graduates in the early 70s. Well, that's the thing. I think it's time. It's a technique. You know, they realize they, they, it's almost like in the old days, I feel like certainly from the 20s into the 30s and that generation, it was like on the job training. And... It was a machine. You're gen- sure. you're, you're ginning out a movie a week for these studios. If you're an actor, a director, you know you're doing maybe a, a director one a month, a, an actor you're doing one a, every couple months or couple weeks. And then when you get into the 50s and 60s, and you have this new generation coming up, 
and then it's refined and they're, they're teaching it in school. You can go to film school. Well, that's school. the thing. You know, the, the thing to put in perspective is that cinema, film, motion pictures is a, still a fairly young art form. Yeah. I mean, it started in a very small way in like the 1890s yeah. with like the Lumiere brothers and they would film the train pulling into the station. Feeding a baby, and then, you know, and, like the first films were documentary films, and you and laugh at people, but people would be just that, like a train pulling in the station would terrify people because they think it's going to come through the screen. Yeah, you know, I've mean, never you know? seen anything like it before. Yeah, and then you have like the. Uh, Remember the the the, the uh, elephant getting electrocuted, you know, or yeah, like they'd have or the horse running. You but have then you this, have the some, people kissing, you know, the, yeah. the first time, the first unseen kiss that was like X-rated. It's just a, a husband and wife that are like in their fifties or sixties, you know, just smooching, not tonguing or not. And then they decide to start telling stories. Then you have the first like really whimsical magic filmmakers that uh, trip to the moon. Yeah, like the Edison French, and French uh, Lumiere. No, the Lumiere brothers were the ones that created like that camera, but like Melies or whatever oh, his yeah. name was. He did like uh, he did like the trip to the moon, and which is that iconic image of like yeah, the, the moon, the moon with uh, the, the, the face getting the, get a chi, and then he gets the <laughs> rocket in the face. And yeah, then. and we also did like the first horror movie, which was a. Uh, I think it's lost now, but it was like a haunted castle type movie, and he was a magician and a and a stage presence that decided to make movies. There's even like a Frankenstein. That movie that, that did um, what was that Spielberg movie? That's about him. Which kind one? of a fictional movie? Man, we're I'm off. Uh, yeah, we're, we're it was we're, a couple years ago. It was just a couple years Munich? ago. No, <laughs> no, 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 Munich? No, no, no. It's about the joke. kid in the in the train station. Sasha Baron Cohen's in it. Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, uh, oh yes. Ben Kingsley yeah, yeah. Plays. That's Scorsese. Yeah. Did I say Spielberg? I meant, I meant Scorsese. Yeah, I know. I, I'm yeah, sorry. I know that. That I don't know the name of it, but I know the movie you speak um, of. Yes, and it's all that. Yes. It's all and uh, I didn't see that yet. That's how far so, behind I am. So it's, I enjoy it. I, I hear it's amazing, but it's one of those movies people, that's what deter me. you got to see it in the cinema. If you don't see it in the movies, you're <laughs> fucked. And then I never got to uh, it. But my point is that it was. it's a fairly young art form. And so... By the time the 60s rolled around and these filmmakers that we're talking about, although I don't... Well, like you say, the people were just, they're learning a camera. They're realizing they can't get a job in whatever trade they learned. So yeah. they're just switching from being like a cabbie or something or whatever, like a mason. Then they're just picking up and then they're just, they're making movies and they're making shit tons of money. So it's very much, they're teaching themselves. And though I don't think Spielberg, um, I could be wrong and I apologize. I don't think Spielberg went to film school. Uh, he's considered part of that film school generation, which is that first generation of filmmakers that there was college courses to go to. That was people like, uh, first it was Coppola, and then his kind of his protege was Lucas. And then you had, uh, on the East Coast, you had Scorsese. Uh, and then Carpenter's part, and Carpenter's kind of part of that generation, too, at, at USC. Romero. I mean, you have a whole bunch. Even oh, Jim Morrison's there because he went to school. Yeah, with I don't think Romero went to school for it. And yeah. Romero was a little bit older because Night of the Living Dead was, came out when they were 68. still in film school. But so my point is that that generation of filmmaker, the Spielbergs, the Lucases, the Coppolas, those guys, the Romeros, those are the first generation of guys that really get are able to be nostalgic about film. Because at that point, film had gotten old enough yeah. 
that they grew up with it. Yeah, because before that, it was just it was like you're saying it was a craft that people got into. But this these were guys that grew up in you know were born in the 40s. Yeah, and they watched it on TV and they rerun got, they, or the revival picture going houses. in the movies. So by the time they got to the 70s and then especially the 80s when they were had a little bit of clout. They know the languages. They were the first filmmakers to be able to make nostalgic movies. And touch upon stuff that they knew people would know subconsciously. And almost uh, they would, you know, uh, manipulate the image or the the scene or whatever because they would know that people, like we're talking about these these goofs, these little funny things, the... the suspension and tension you just said that was set up in that scene in Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's like that all works because, you know, when you have a, a history or a, 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 a tutelage of watching this stuff growing up, yeah. if it's reading in the pulps, if it's watching television, it's seeing the old films we and have revivals. Like a predisposition yeah. to where that back language. then people we and we've said this all the time to we're blue in the face on this cast, where if you were growing up in the thirties, forties and fifties, well not maybe the fifties, you couldn't see once a movie came and went from the theater, you may not see it again. Yeah. So it's they had the kind of the benefit of being uh, having TV and suburbia and having all this well, stuff. Even like this is even, but it's still pre VHS. So it's like they still didn't have complete access to it, but you would get it on TV and you'd have revivals. And so we start to get this whole slew of nostalgic love movies, which yeah. is, you know, Lucas with, um, uh, with American Star Wars, with American Graffiti, but then Star Wars and you get, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we talk a lot about this with in Greece in our Greece podcast, where we talk about like the nostalgic for the fifties. Uh, but then you also have like Romero and Stephen King doing Creep Show, which is definitely part of that. It's all definitely that, yeah, like all EC like, comics, like yeah. Star Wars, uh, Indiana, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Creep Show, even it's. All part of this like love affair for their youth, and that's what the, the funny thing is. I don't know what we said like twenty minutes ago is that it's if you take it two from hours the, ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when you take it out from the bare bones, I mean, it's just like some of the biggest Star Wars, Indiana Jones, these big properties are just love letters to the to the Tarzan, to Doc Savage, to Flash Gordon. Uh, and it's funny that Flash Gordon ends up flopping in the 80s. It's, you know, maybe I don't know how Tarzan did. Um, but like you have these movies, they're just, you know, these love letters to this whole genre that's kind of gone that they're revitalizing. And then not only do they revive it, I mean, you can argue now Star Wars Indiana Jones could be the uh, biggest properties, you know, in, 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 in America or international history yeah. to a certain extent. I'm sure you can have subgenres of other things, but... It's like Star Wars conceivably could always be with us now for the next how many years if they do it right. Or maybe to a certain extent Indiana Jones if they wanted to. You know, and it doesn't necessarily even need to be in cinematic form. It could be comic book. It could well, be yeah. book. I mean, what be, they did like the know, Indiana Jones Chronicles on Great television. show. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, so all this stuff, and it's they're all born out of, like you're saying, these older... It's just, just this this love for these older movies. And, and, that, and that's another thing I want to say that I'm sure I'm not... I'm preaching to the choir with our listeners, but if you haven't gone back and watched all the these older movies from the 30s and 40s, these serials that they talk about here, I mean, you're really doing yourself an in-service be- uh, disservice because if you like these type of movies, you're going to find scores of movies like just like them back in the day. I mean, they may ha- be rudimentary or they may have some issues, but overall, it's it's just it's just you know these genres are amazing, you know, yeah. and and these are just you know 
polished up versions of those older movies. Yeah. You know, so it's really fun to go back and explore those kind of whatever, you know, uh, serial or genre you, you like and go back and check them all out. So it's fun to then you have these kind of movies come around and they're such a staple on the uh, urban or American lexicon now, you know, and, and, it's, and it's just these guys who are just basically just doing what, you know, hey, let's, they want to, you know, they always tell you in writing, don't write for your audience, write for yourself, you know, make, you know, c- comedy, make, do something that your friends will laugh at or you'll laugh at, not at what you think the audience will laugh at. So they're just making movies they want to see, Yeah, you know, basically, and, you know. Which is interesting because, I mean, I think especially now, I think there is a little bit of a, and, and even then, even when we were in school, before the new, the new quote unquote Star Wars movies, the first three, yeah, uh, Phantom episode, Menace, and episodes all that. one, two, and three, you know, because uh, episode one, Phantom Menace came out while we were in school, yeah, like ninety eight, maybe ninety nine. But I remember we were already at film school. But so there's, especially now because of the disdain that some fans feel for those first three movies but there's a big anti-lucas sentiment but there's also there's a gen- you probably know this there's a generation of people rh who have kids and those kids won't go back and watch the older ones they know and love those first three but what you're saying yeah people got pissed at lucas because it's like how can you go and take take a a property and then redo it in such a way that was it was kind of like was it like blasphemy? Like people got so. I up, think some people. You know, felt that I mean, way, I remember yeah. you and I being in a car in film school with two other guys, and we were laughing like about the idea that Lucas was going to invent a digital camera to be able to. He wasn't going to shoot on film. We're like, that's poppycock. <laughs> How are you not going to be able to shoot on film? And to this day, I still like you know shooting on film and stuff. And uh, where they they were just talking about um, the Crystal Skull, the last Indiana Jones movie that they shot it, the entire thing on film, old school. They edited it on, uh, they didn't edit it on Avids, they edited it with, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, Michael Kahn, the, the director, the editor who did all these movies, he edited it on a Steam Beck or Moviola. And, you know, and that's very rare nowadays. And that's going 10 years ago, Jesus, yeah. you know? But I, I find Lucas, what, you know, however you feel about Lucas, because people will argue, well, like, he didn't direct the Indiana Jones movies, or he only directed the first, the original Star Wars movie. And at the time, this is pre-Phantom Menace. And then he was like, well, he, and he hadn't directed anything in 20 years. Yeah. You know, he went up- so this is big, and there was this big, like, shit on Lucas kind. But Lucas is a fascinating figure. I mean, here's a guy who went to film school was as experimental of a filmmaker as like one could, you know, really be. You know, he was a he wanted he was a documentarian, uh very arty, even if you look at the original THX. I like love I love that. Yeah. But even his student film, it's it's a guy that you don't to me anyway, and I could be reading it wrong, but I, it's a guy that you don't see Star Wars coming out of yet, you know. Uh, but then he makes American Graffiti, and it's clear that he has this nostalgia for his youth and cars and speed. And, and I just find him to be really interesting because he's a bit of a contradiction when you look at him as a youth. It's like at some point it was like I, you almost feel like what we're talking about, like the pretension of youth, of, of being in film school. Maybe, maybe he was... Uh, 
just a typical young adult and kind of shunning certain things. And then, it, and then you can look like, and then you look at by like his mid twenties, he probably might've had this revelation of like, you know what I really fucking love is like fast cars. And I love old cereals. Yeah. Not the food, <laughs> but like, I loved going to the movies and watching flash Gordon yeah. or Zorro. Oh, you know, he, you, can, you know, so like the, the, so then these, this idea of like the early to mid seventies, uh, or he can even be looking at like what what can I do now that's there's a market for that is not being done right now. Then you're quite. What do I love? I love cereals, not the cer- you eat on Saturday morning. <laughs> he might like that too. Yeah. I don't. You know, and I love. Yeah, I love the old. He he always recites the Republic cereals, Flash Gordon, and all. You know, and then he's like, well, that's not being done. You could kind of say that's being done to an extent with the James Bonds. Yeah, but at the time, you know, there wasn't. If you take out probably the Bonds, there wasn't, uh, you know, or Planet of the Apes, we always talk about, there weren't sequels, you know, being developed and done. So, the, you know, yeah. so the serial kind of thing was done. Like a franchise thing yeah. didn't really I'd say by the, by the 50s, you know, when, when, when TV came into to, to play and people stopped going to the cinema and then they had to try to re- reinvigorate cinema with, like, widescreen, I think that's when it died out, like cartoons, newsreels. Uh, the Three Stooges, all those, Abbott Costello, all those little shorts that were done that you'd go to a movie before you'd see the feature, you'd see all these little bits. Those were kind of went, I think, by the wayside probably in the late 50s. Yeah. So by the 60s, cartoons are basically being done for the most part for television with yeah. Hanna-Barbera. Or they're just you know, recycling them from when they aired. Yeah, or you have... I mean, when they screened in movies. You know, you have... All those Looney Tunes yeah. ones are now just being shown on Same Hollywood. thing with Three Stooges, I'm sure, uh, Laurel Hardy and stuff like that. So they're not making stuff anymore, or what they're doing is they're taking those shorts like they do with the Three Stooges, and they're cutting them together, making some new wraparounds, and putting them out as theatrical movies. So you've lost, you know, the art of the serial, so to speak. You I mean, you could argue, I guess, like Green Hornet and those 60s shows, Batman. Sure. You know, and those kind of things were in themselves a serial. You know, what's yeah. going to happen next week? You better come stay tuned. But it's like... <laughs> same bad time. Same, same bad channel. But like on the old days, like, you know, when you go to the movies on a Saturday afternoon, that was they would, there was a cottage industry of, you know, you had Batman, you had, you know, Captain Video's TV, but you had all those, you had Buck Rogers, you had these Tarzan, you had these things where that would get the kid to come back next week. We want to see what's going to happen to... Tin, Rin Tin Tin or somebody, yeah. you know well, what I mean? We're talking about it. You're right. I mean, we're talking about a time really before television. Yeah, it was during radio. I mean, you have, and that was the same thing. It was serials were on the radio. You know, tune in next week. You'll find out what happened to the Shadow or what happened to Dick Tracy. So that was the whole to get your audience back. You'd have to leave that cliffhanger. You have to leave the hey, you know. And I'm sure this is stuff you know our, our uh, people who are listening know already. But yeah. so by the time you hit the 70s. You know, radio has fallen by the wayside. TV's really blown everything out. I mean, movies have kind of upended because the studio system is is ended. You have the people doing what they can because they don't have a code anymore uh, with a rating system. So there is a great idea there. Hey, what do I like? I like, in the old days, we had cereals. Those were fun. Those were, you know, and, and the cereals yeah. were always like these exotic locations. I just feel like there's this pieces. moment. I feel like there's this moment where... Lucas said to himself he's taking a shit and he's like yes <laughs> you know what I you know you know what I really loved and I want to do that because this is the same guy that you know Apocalypse Now wasn't made until the late 70s and and uh, you know didn't come out till like 79 it took like three years to make as well but uh, 
you know, this is a guy who Lucas was going to make Apocalypse Now in the early 70s as like a document, as like a handheld yeah, he was gonna document, do like he, experimental document. Like the same guy that was going to go into the jungle with just like one camera handheld and make this weird experimental movie that would be Apocalypse Now that then got uh, completely redone. Yeah, that then uh, he was going to take because he was part of the Coppola's like zoetrope troupe. In the 70s. He was going to take the idea that Orson Welles was trying to do in the, I don't know, maybe it was the late 40s. And Orson Welles, I think, had an idea of doing the original Hearts of Darkness, Joseph Conrad adaptation, not bring it to modern times, because that takes place at the turn of the century. Uh, um, And it's about the ivory trade in Africa and going down, I think, the Nile. And he was going to, Orson's idea was to do it all first person, do it all POV. So it would be like The Lady in the Lake. There's a great um, movie, uh, Pulp detective movie where it's all first person and then there's another Humphrey Bogart one which is really cool where it's Humphrey Bogart breaks out of prison I think Lauren Bacall takes him in it's all first person then he gets uh, plastic surgery and then you know he takes the bandages off and then you see it's Humphrey Bogart and then then the movie changes so I think that's what you're saying was the idea uh, what's his face Orson Welles had only done some post-production pre-production like uh, photos and, and drawings but then that fell apart, and then that was what he was going to do in the early 70s, was do this document. But that... But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think it was going to be first person. I, to my recollection, it was going to be more of trying to do it the way, like, the news was covering Vietnam. Ah. You know, more More like, like Night, Night Living Dead, like Romero kind of did. More of, like, a faux documentary yeah. version of it. So here's a guy who has, like, these weird experimental, like, avant-garde uh, ideas. But then at the same time, on the other side of the coin, there's this kid in him that wants to make the most commercial movie straight <laughs> of all time without commercial without selling out though just commercial in the sense that he knows that there's an interest in them and that they will sell and that they will get heads. I don't even know at that point I mean he even says like with Star Wars nobody thought it was going to be a hit yeah, like, oh, yeah. I don't even think he really thought it was going to be a hit for some reason he it was a story that he had to tell and I think there's this like I have this theory that like he sold his soul to for Star Wars not like I mean, in like a literal sense, not in like a figurative, like he sold out. Like, because here's a guy who doesn't seem like in his youth that he was going to be such like a shrewd. He wasn't destined for the kind of wealth and and success that he had. But I wonder if it's that he hooked some, up with people. But then Spielberg's. But he, then you know, he made Star Wars. and That changed everything. And... In making Star Wars, he created ILM and he created Dolby Sound, and that has its hand in and everything. Spielberg, has, I mean, and Lucas has now had his hand in like o- almost every major motion picture made since then. Yeah, because to it's get brilliant. Star Wars done, he had to create these other businesses that revolutionized the entire film industry. Yeah, and you know. Lucas Sound, people still go to Skywalker Ranch to mix their movies. Yeah. And Industrial Light and Magic Island was the special effects company. Like, this guy, he created Dolby Surround Sound. I mean, this is a guy who, uh, was he really a visionary? Very Or did he sell his soul to the devil? Did he meet the devil at the crossroads Uh, as Robert Johnson did? Just a really fascinating figure. So when you get to, uh, Something like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, we get to where you're saying is so he he ends up having a hell of a time doing Star Wars. You know, I mean, it's one of those classic stories that you hear that like, you know, a studio's breathing down his neck. He's not going to get it done. They're going to close it, blah, blah, blah. He gets it done. And then this becomes a tradition with him where he ends up 
getting away. He goes on vacation to get away when the movie opens. And I guess they, him and Spielberg had planned to go on vacation together. He didn't want to be around to hear how fucking miserable Star Wars was going to be on yeah. its opening weekend. So he went to like Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii. He goes to Hawaii with Spielberg and they sit there and he says like an, like an election. They're, they're, they start looking at it and it's the biggest movie ever. Waiting for a phone call to yeah. say like, you just made the biggest movie of all. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, shit, and that's amazing. So him and, you know, him and Spielberg are sitting around and they're building sand castles as you do. Uh, like me and Blake do every time we go to the beach. And uh, they start talking about what you want to do next. And Spielberg said, you know, hey, I'd love to do a James Bond movie. And that gives Lucas an idea of what he was thinking of, like, what, five or six years earlier, before, yeah. either before or post-American Graffiti, but before Star Wars, yeah. where he was sitting with our uh, our man, Phil uh, Kaufman, mm-hmm. who did um, uh, We Love Always, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yeah. the remake. We always cite him for that. They, they're both, he's a San Francisco guy, Lucas is hanging out with them, and they start developing an idea because when Phil Kaufman was little, he used to go to a dentist. And when he'd go to the dentist, the dentist would, I guess, entertain him while he was doing his teeth and tell him old biblical stories. And he would tell him about the Ark of the Covenant and the legend behind the Ark of the Covenant. So cut to when Lucas and Kaufman are hanging out together, uh, Lucas starts saying he wants to do a, a story about a kind of a, uh, a quarter, an Alan Quartermain, a Doc Savage kind of a guy. And, you know, have it be a, uh, a kind of a guy who's an adventurer who goes to these exotic lands and places and he kind of needs to have a hook. And Coffin's like, well, hey, you know, why don't you bring in the yeah. fantastic element wants, of it? Lucas is like, has kind of this idea of like an, an archaeologist, an adventurer, that's, that's yeah. an adventurer who's looking for artifacts. Yeah, like a quarter And man. maybe it would be cool to have him do stuff that had to do with like the occult. Yeah. And then Phil, Phil Kaufman's like, what about the Ark of the Covenant? And like, he's like, listen, listen to this crazy story. Yeah, and he tells him this, the story. And he's like, that's a great idea. So they kind of develop that idea. And then they, they do it for about a month. But then what happens is Kaufman goes and gets hired by Eastwood, I think, to do Outlaw Josie Wales. Outlaw Josie Wales. I which thought, he wrote, like, he did some rewrites on the script and then started directing it. I was going to say, I, don't, I didn't think he directed it. He Eastwood started directed, directing it and then Eastwood didn't like it. Eastwood's cited as having creative differences. People think it's speculation that Kaufman wanted Eastwood to do t- more takes than Eastwood yeah. wanted to do. Eastwood's a very, like, one-two-take guy. Yeah, and also, like, a shrewd uh, uh, businessman. And it's like, this is a waste of money. He always comes in under budget, Eastwood. He's always so, got this thing. So he ends up even, I think Kaufman might have helped with the script, helped develop the, maybe helped develop the movie, but then after, I don't know for how long of directing the movie, Eastwood's like, yeah, yeah, this isn't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> and Eastwood ends up taking over the direction of the yeah. movie himself. So in that time... Uh, but then by the time that was done, Lucas was in full swing with Star Wars. Yeah. So that's And then when they there. came around to revisit it, by the late 70s... Kaufman's doing probably Kaufman was going to do... Well, Invasion, but then I think once they really talked about maybe him directing it, he was about to start uh, the right stuff. Okay. So then we get to this beat scene where <laughs> cut to Spielberg so and Lucas I don't are, think they wrote a script. I think they just maybe wrote an outline. Yeah. They had an idea. And that's why you get the story by on the credit on the poster is story by Lucas and Kaufman. Yeah. Cut to Spielberg and Lucas are building castles in the sand so on circa Hawaii. like summer 77. Yeah, they're sitting there and then... Spielberg's like, you know what I'd really like to do? He just got I'd like off to of do doing... A, I'd love to do a James Bond movie, but those damn Brits, they're so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> they're so... Uh, 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 what's the... Finicky? Not finicky, but the... 
they you know so hesitant to they have ownership over this idea of they don't they would never let an American direct yeah. a James Bond movie. And he had just had the success off of Close Encounters. So he's basking in the sun. Lucas has just got this windfall of Star well, Wars. Yeah, I don't even was it was that even was Close Encounters even a success yet? I'm trying to forget what year it came but out. It was good enough for them to be I mean, I don't know that it might have been coming out around yeah. the same time. Like they might have that, not that known the reason it why they're success. maybe that's the reason why they're on vacation. Like they were both vacationing yeah, from making Star Wars and but uh, even as much as Spielberg would love to make James Bond movie, there's no way like this British production company was going to let some American kid come in because that was a hot and, property. And right do there. like their iconic, yeah, <laughs> British I mean, character. By that time, I think you just had Moonraker has, is is either probably in pre production. Man with the Golden Arm, Man with the Golden Gun, had just been done. So those were huge hits you think in the 70s. Moonraker was like they, 78, isn't Moonraker? Yeah, so, but Moonraker had to be an. I mean, but Moonraker no, an answer had to, start, post had Star to Wars. be an answer yeah, to yeah. success of Star but Wars. But I mean, at least Christopher Lee, Man with the Golden Gun, is out mid seventies. Yeah. So you know, I'm, my point here is just it's an it's a very well firmly established reoccurring. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, you know, franchise are, already on their third. Bond. Yeah, actor. Yeah, by that time, so <laughs> it'd be hard for Spielberg to come in there and try to do. So he's just saying, I'd like to make a Bond esque movie, but you know, like you said, Bonds. Kind of, there's a lot of problems that come with Bond, and Lucas is like, "Well, hey, I got one better for you. Like you just said, I have a. I, let's do an old pulp movie. You know, I, I have this idea about this guy who travels the world, Indiana Smith. <laughs> you know? His name's Indiana Smith, and he finds crazy artifacts that have to do with the occult. Now, back in the '70s, I guess there was a big thing where um, Lucas had this big Alaskan dog. He'd sit. Uh, shotgun while he's driving around, and that kind of became the inspiration of Han and Chewbacca. You know, everybody's seeing this, uh, what do you call it? You know, the, the dog. Uh, and the, you know. Alaskan Malamute. Yeah, so. It's big, like, hairy dog. And it would also sit with Lucas while he wrote. So yeah. while Lucas was writing And his dog, dog's Wars, name was Indiana. <laughs> the dog would sit there with him while he wrote. So he had to Give him pointers, dog. tell him what's not working in the script, you know. <laughs> so he had this big dog that was the inspiration for Chewbacca, but the dog's name was Indiana. Yeah. So, you were named after the dog. dog. So, um, Sala. So the uh, so he says, you know, I have a character named Indiana Smith, and he's like, and Spielberg's like, this sounds like a really good idea. Let's talk about this. But Indiana Smith sounds shitty. It yeah. also reminds me of Nevada Smith. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a really good Stephen McQueen movie uh, where he's a half Indian Western called Indiana uh, Nevada Smith. Carl Malden, Martin Landau, who just died, pretty good. And that's based off uh, a writer who did like the Carpetbaggers. I think that's the same property. And that was like seventy six. No, that's sixty. I mean sixty six. Sixty six. So yeah, that was like ten years. Before yeah, this. and it's still you know it's it's a, it's so that's well in the zeitgeist at the time. Nevada Smith and he's like well you know it's it's too much. So he's like well how about we just do Jones? Yeah, he you wants know, it still to generic. be kind of like a generic you know, name. Uh, but the, honestly, Indiana Jones sounds so much better than Indiana Smith. It does. Smith. <laughs> I think Nevada Smith sounds fucking awesome, and then Indiana Jones sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. Know, Nevada, Nevada Jones, Nevada no. and Smith goes. Nevada Jones would have been good too. <laughs> Nevada Jones sounds more like a like an Indian, you know, like uh, Pam Greer would have played. Star, <laughs> oh, she's back. In all Nevada Jones. Nevada Jones is up in Harlem causing some shit. Uh, all right. Uh, but so they settle on Indiana Jones. They bring in uh, Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah. Spielberg writer. had optioned the rights to The Continental Divide. Yes. Which was a script by Lawrence Kasdan. Yes. Another example of a movie never never gets made. He, they probably got a shitload of money. It did eventually get made. But uh, 
he uh, he reads the script and he's like, you know what? I think this guy might be the guy to write this Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. So he tells Lucas. I think Lucas might have read the script for Con Air. He's like, yeah, bring him in. Let's talk to him. And they have this this epic three day session in seventy eight from January the twenty third to January twenty seventh, nineteen seventy eight. They have this script meeting where um, the three of them sit down with a tape recorder. Luckily. And uh, it ends up being um, this really, really uh, uh, mind-blowing thing where now, for anybody who's a writer, and I think we should include a link to this thing, uh, people have this, for years, this was lost. And people only had rumors of this transcript or this tape thing. And it was since transcribed and now is in literary form. And if you're a writer or you're a fan of Indiana Jones... I mean, you would agree. It's a it's a must read. It's yeah. It's amazing to see just the uh, uh, the uh, brainstorming session of these these well, creative geniuses. That's kind of where I was going with the whole Lucas thing because at least I feel like in our late teens and early twenties when we were in film school, there was the sentiment of like, yeah, okay, he he wrote and directed the first Star Wars, but he didn't write the next ones. Yeah. And he didn't direct them, and he didn't write and direct. And he hasn't done anything else since. And he's got a you new know, movie coming out now, but Phantom you, Menace. But when you read this transcript, you see that Lucas is a, is the guy in the driver's seat. Yeah. with this, he's like, full of the ideas. The, he's, he's got, got the ideas. He's got like what he's worked out with Phil Kaufman from a couple of years ago, and. But he's the one, he's driving it, and it's like every time Spielberg comes up with an idea, he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, that may be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tone it down a little bit, tone it down a little bit. It's like Blake and I in a room. I'm Blake's talking, I keep saying, you know, well, maybe we can do that. But it's very much... Yeah. It's, a, it's his idea. Like You can totally see that this is his baby when he's, you read it. He's got s- sequences laid out. I mean, and, and you know, they start off, you know, it's it really is a... a, a a, a must read for anybody. Who's it's a interested. fascinating look into you know, the creative process, especially if you're if you're a writer of any sorts. Because I'm always fascinated by the process of how these people got to making this, and to hear Spielberg, Lucas, and a, a little uh, 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 what's his face, Kazdin, Kazdin, he'll occasionally chime yeah. in. And then as it goes on, he when when they're more laying out ideas, he'll he'll ask questions or he'll clarify or interject. But I mean, right from the beginning, you know, they start saying. In, in these transcripts, they want it to be uh, a serial. Uh, they want to plan it out mathematically. We want to have a climax, yeah, every finger, every 10 pages. pages. And that's maybe brilliant. 10, maybe 10 is too many because that would be like 12. Yeah. Like, maybe 6 is We're going to be writing a 90-page to 120-page script, so we need to have them 10 to 12 pages, you know, with the plotting, the planning. Uh, they want it to be a, 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 a kind of like a spaghetti western uh, set in the 30s. They cite Eastwood a lot. They cite Bond's character a lot. They cite Toshiro Mifune yeah. almost. The idea, the idea is that like it's a guy who's good at what he does. Yeah, and they also, and this is the who's brilliant command of his his thing. Yeah, they're saying you know he's like the the name with no the man with no name the Eastwood spaghetti westerns. He's a iconic character in the sense where that that was the first thing. What kind of a guy is he? Does he have pathos? Does he have uh, weakness? Or is he just the guy that walks through and nothing will touch him? And, you know, they have to, you know, is he like an Eastwood? Is he like a Mufune? They talk about, or is he a little darker? Is he like um, Humphrey Bogart from Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Or is he more like uh, Clark Gable from um, 
Is he a son of a bitch like uh, yeah, yeah. Rhett Butler from uh, Gone with the Wind? Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's all this stuff that you could kind of take for granted as and a it's, viewer. When like these decisions have to be made, and it's they in, in this transcript they reference. It's like it's like Maltese Falcon. We're going to have the Sydney Green Street character. We're going to have the Peter Lorre. We're going to have think the it's bu- Spielberg's like. Well, you know, the thing about Mifune and the Kurosawa movies is, like, he's surrounded by buffoons, so yeah. he becomes more majestic. I think he uses the word majestic. Because you have him playing off these kind of comedic buffoons. And, and, then, Lucas, and, that's, and Lucas is like, yeah, I get what you mean. I mean, we don't want anybody to be a buffoon. I mean, we don't want anybody to be stupid. But, I, but like, he's like, like the Maltese Falcon. Like, all those people. Yeah, he's like have, Elijah Cook Jr. He's like, yes. They're quirky characters, but they're all dangerous. Yeah, he says they cite specifically Elijah Cook Jr. and, and Maltese Falcon, who's Sidney Green. Street's guy and he is really an idiot in the movie and, and ignorant but he's also the most dangerous one because he is the hitman he's the strong arm so there is a great dichotomy there they 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 basically you know he then they start thinking about let's have him have a whip and his whip is going to be almost a samurai sword yeah, yeah. you know and then it's they, like it's there and he only whips it out when, when he, he needs the little yeah. <laughs> you know he needs it. but you don't know you know it says it's always there you don't really pay attention to it till he whips it out and they start saying like he's essentially like a private detective grave robber you know he's yeah. an archaeologist he's an outlaw archaeologist he's a bounty hunter who's hired to go steal yeah a museum artifact. bounty hunter and so like all these he's a soldier of fortune so they start really you know honing down and 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 bringing all these ideas like you know the john wayne the eastwood the humphrey bogart the all those you know uh chuck heston you know um and they start narrowing these then they start bringing up other ideas and it's you know then they start bringing the the hitler aspect into it and like the you know hitler in real life was going after a lot of these occult things yeah well they talk about how the spirit destiny he's got to talk about uh well the spirit destiny yeah but also uh, the ark of the covenant and what's the story and yeah what's the army like in the bible and when you know any army that carries it is going to win and yeah which is not necessarily true but but you know this idea they start obviously fabricating the story yeah there's two arcs there's one when two sets of tablets one went missing there's the solomon arc and there's a daviatic arc uh i think the daviatic arc no one knows what happened about with it and then there's the solomon arc and that's the arc they use in this and that has the tablets of the ten commandments inside and then what is the, and then they're saying well what is the arc going to be what what is the, the MacGuffin in this story what's it going to do yeah. is it just a set piece or well they're like well how about if it's a transmitter you can talk to god with it that's yeah, pretty yeah. cool you know maybe then we can play on that and then the idea of the mystique, the fantastic, the occult of maybe we shouldn't open it. Maybe it's there's a something in this world we shouldn't mess with <laughs> yeah. kind of an aspect. Yeah. You know, so they start and, and it's just, you know, I can't emphasize enough how amazing that this, this, uh, reading this, this, this transcript of them to just come and they, and they talk and then, and you really see in the, I think it's like 80 or 90 pages, this transcript over the course of three or four days, you, they lay out pretty much, uh, almost to the beats Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they come up with all this. They come up with like, um, you know, the Marion character, her dad, uh, you know, and then the ideas they talk about the dad don't even show up until like Crystal Skull. And they start talking about set pieces. And that's how I like to write. I like to envision like grand set pieces or landscapes and how do you get your story there? So they're saying, let's, how about Peru? How about Shanghai? How about Cairo? How about Nepal? So they start thinking about where they can like far out east or we can have one of the bad guys be Chinese. So they start coming up with stuff, and a lot of stuff they end up not using. 
they, they have to delete and they, it comes up in Temple of Doom, like the Shanghai sequence at the beginning of Temple of Doom where yeah. he's hiding behind a gong and he meets... Is that Shanghai or Hong Kong? I forget where the opening scene of Temple is. And then the idea of him in the plane and then everybody bails out and he's got to try to land the plane himself. Or the idea of the mine car. Like all the, they had so many ideas in it that they, they had to cut it out and they just left it for Temple of Doom. Yeah, yeah. Well, to me, the most enlightening thing about it was one, really seeing Lucas's role in the whole thing. Yeah. Like really. Now, you see- had never read this before. I had read this. This came out. Uh, 2007 or 8 I remember it came on the internet for like a minute and then it went away yeah. so I immediately took it and uh, printed it out longhand so I have an, uh, my copy of it longhand yeah, wrote, he, he says longhand <laughs> yeah, he, 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 I he wrote got, it on he got some legal pads out and, uh, and transcribed <laughs> that whole son of a bitch and mine is the original wasn't working that night. mine has like the old original it looks like it's 30 years old the transcript and then when I was like when we were saying we had to do this I was like oh well you're going to have to read this and I guess you said you hadn't read it before. And then we found it readily on the internet, so it must be available now. And it's since then been transcribed better than I had. Yeah, yeah. Like new people like our age have maybe sat down and tried to transcribe it to mm-hmm. make it look better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, I mean, because especially in the beginning when you see it, it's like you'll, if you just look at the text itself, it's like these big giant things of text and then like a line a line. And it's those big giant blocks of text are all Lucas telling them like this is what it is this is who the character is so there's this because you know as a fan of star as a major fan of star wars and just a you know an, a regular fan of the anana jones movies yeah i never really knew really what lucas's role was i didn't it, you know you, you think knew about that he it. was the producer and you knew that it was kind of his but idea. i don't i'm not the uh, i'm maybe the only one that's not the first person to say this but i don't even associate really lucas with Indie, I think of more I mean, of I always kind of did, but it was because, like, I was a diehard Star Wars fan growing yeah. up, which, you know, much more so than you were. So the Lucas connection to Indy was always... Inherent because you, you know, knew. because of my love for Star Wars. But it still never really knew what his role in it was. So there's that was very revealing to me and fascinating. And the other thing is to see kind of how smart Lucas is. Because Lucas, when you read, especially in the beginning when they're talking about the character stuff, and he's like, you know, I would love for him to know martial arts. I mean, he doesn't have to be fluent in it, but this is a guy that travels the world. Yeah. So, you he know, he, he's, so he's picked up things. So he knows, like, kung fu and karate. But he, so he's throwing out all these ideas, but then, like... He's very quick pa- to edit But then himself. a page later, yeah. he's like... But we, you know, but the important thing is that like we streamline it and make it simple. So maybe all these ideas I'm throwing out aren't going to work in the long run. But it's something to think about. Like even though we don't use it in the movie, as we create the character, like we the know Bible. that he knows. Yeah, it, you know, for the character. Bible. So it's like, so he's like you said, he's very quick to edit himself, which I think is kind of uh, a signal of. Intelligence. Oh yeah, yeah. So like, he's because he knows like the bottom line is it needs to be simple. Yeah. So he's like maybe all this stuff is just going to make everything confusing, but he's willing to throw out all his ideas and then say, but maybe they're not going to. Yeah, work. he can he can get rid of stuff just as quick. He's not you know he's not hanging on to his babies. Or he's not yeah. completely for it. The other big thing with this too is from the get go. You, the both of them, Spielberg and Lucas, have an understanding where they've been doing these big Hollywood movies prior to this. Uh, not so much Star Wars, but like say Spielberg doing Jaws or Close Encounters, where they would do uh, elaborate setups and have you know twenty or thirty takes for certain sequences. Where the idea from this is, we want to do this fast and dirty as quick well, as it's possible. The only way they could they 
there's the only way they'd have a chance of getting the money. Yeah. Because if you talk about the idea, like on page or just in discussion, this is a giant movie. Yes. So it's very intimidating for a studio to, to say like, like yeah let's do it because we're especially talking, at the time too we're talking about set pieces all over the world giant action sequences prior to cgi any kind of cgi so that means you'd have to either travel your cast and crew to these said locations or fabricate these locations in giant studios so that's a lot of money lucas is like we can make this for under we need to make this for under 20 million dollars and he's telling the studios i'm gonna we're gonna make it for under 20 million dollars and studios are like you can't make this yeah. for under 20 and that was always something that you and I used to always talk about back going back to us in our uh, student film days writing a script. I always thought it was uh, smart to write your script with the idea of yourself shooting. You don't want to write a senior film about space travel and being in the cosmos. And then suddenly when you go to try to shoot, you're like, shit, how am I going to fabricate? Unless you're John Carpenter. Yeah. And like, that's the difference. Exactly. It's like the visionaries are like, you know, no, I'm going to make a movie about this crazy thing in space called Dark Star, yeah. and I'm gonna fucking make it. But what I mean here is that it, it, you know, a lot of times you have to keep your budget in mind of, yeah. you know, how are you gonna be able to? Sometimes you can have this out there mind great story, but then it's like, well, how are you gonna actually put put this to 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 to, to the screen? Yeah. So yeah. they were very easily here, like. Yeah, like I we can't have five thousand, you know, yeah. Asian extras when we shoot in Hong Kong. It's not going to work. It's, you know, and, and, too it's much funny money. because it's funny because you hear seeing the relationship between Spielberg and Lucas because Spielberg is like, ah, oh, well, we can shoot that anywhere in the Middle East or whatever. We get second unit, blah blah blah. And Spielberg is like, well, you know, this, but this is period. This is nice, you know. It's yeah. very interesting to see the friction. Yeah. But like creative friction. You know, they're not angry with each other. It doesn't come off that way to No, me they're just giving each other it. good bullet points or back and forth. They're bouncing off you know, each other. Because Spielberg, as uh, smart as he is, and I'm not saying that this is a, a, a criticism, but he's he keeps throwing out these fantastic ideas. Yeah. Like, we'll have, um, you know, uh, and then we'll have uh, this happen, and they're fighting on a this, and this, and then this is going to, and then they'll have snakes down there. You know, it's like. <laughs> And and Lucas is like, yeah, that's good, but we have to re- yeah, we have yeah. to well, figure out how to. Well, you know, that's kind of the in a way that's like the role. I think what people would imagine the role of a producer and a director is. The director is like shooting for the stars. Yeah. Producers like being realistic. logistically. Yeah, how are we like, going to do yes, this? <laughs> yeah, let's think about that, but let's make sure we can pull it off for what for yeah. the resources we and have. And they're looking at like you know what hasn't been seen in a while. Let's uh, you know where can we go? What looks what would benefit the character if he's an artist? Archaeologist, the soldier of fortune. Let's have them. They were like, we don't want to have any other movie be shot in America. Let's be. Comp- I mean, I'm Spielberg's saying story like, wise. Spielberg's like, we're not shooting a drop spot yeah. in this movie. None of this movie in takes the America. states. And, it's, and Lucas is like, well, I have the one scene in, uh, in, DC, in DC, you know, at the but it's a museum. It's yeah. just an museum. It's in carriers, <laughs> you know. But the idea is, they don't mean like they don't want to shoot the film. They want to just have the story take place outside the states, yeah, these yeah. exotic locations. So they started in South America. They travel to the to the Far East. Then they end up in the Middle East and then they you know maybe bookended it with in England or whatever so they start coming up with these these great set pieces they're developing the Marion character 
you know, they're saying, well, you know, maybe she's a bar owner. She's like Rick from Casablanca, and she has this place like Rick's place. And yeah. and then they start very much going into like, well, how can we have? That was the thing too, which was very impressive. We want to have a lady there. We want to have him have some sort of dichotomy. But then we have to justify why we're dragging this lady around everywhere. Is she a damsel in distress? Is she a, 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 an active protagonist? Why is she with us? You know, we're going to get bored with her. What are we going to do with her for these scenes? Do we drop her out? So they make her an active participant. Well, maybe she has uh, Indy needs something from her because his her father was his mentor. Good idea. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then they start thinking. Then, and really funny, they start getting into how about they had a relationship. And this is something that gets brushed over a bit where they're like, Indy's supposed to be like in his you know early to mid 30s and she's supposed to be like 25 now. Uh, the Marion character, Marion Ra- Ravenwood. And they're like, well, how about this happened 10 years before? So they're like, she's what, 12 or 13 when they have this relationship? Well, they're like, 15 is pushing it. She'd be too old. We're going to have her be. And then, like, it's a relationship she started. You know, so it's like they're almost talking about, like, you know, like, uh, like a, a statutory rape to a certain extent, yeah, which but, was different back then, I yeah, guess. Yeah, which would but have it's been so in the 20s. F- it's so funny that they're you know, like. People got married. But oh, yeah, very 15. young, you know. <laughs> but it's funny that they're talking about, like, she's the aggressor in this relationship. She brings him in. And then there's that is what causes this kind of riffle, this falling out with the father character. They go their separate ways, and I guess we're led to believe that the the um, uh, what's his name character, the uh, Abner uh, Ravenwood, goes to Nepal with his daughter to I guess find elements of the Ark of the Covenant. He passes away there, and she's stuck there, and it becomes almost like a wages of fear sorcerer kind of thing, where she can't get the money to leave, so she's kind of stuck. Or she's is happy what she's doing on the edge of the abyss, yeah, the last yeah. outpost. So they come up with all the, and then they're talking about the idea of, well, he's got to have some sort of malady. What does he hate? How about snakes? Snakes is a great idea. How about rats? Well, you know, maybe not rats. Snakes is good. We can yeah, yeah. do that. And then they cite your man, uh, Jeff um, Lieberwitz. They're like, it's like Squirm. Yeah, Lieberman. You know, Lieberman. They're like, you know, remember in Squirm how everything's moving? We can do that. With the, in the, and so they're talking about where can we shoot and what can we do? And we can have pyramids. And the, the Nazis were always going all over the world. So we can have them. And then we cite the movie takes place in 1936. Um, we don't declare war until... 41 but hitler doesn't invade until 39 so if you look at the geography of the times 36 is when the olympics were happening so we're and i think 37 or 38 is the hindenburg coming over and blowing up in in, in new jersey so we were still on very good terms to a certain extent with the nazis in 36 when the movie takes place but it is and then they established the idea of indy you know he he's a realist he it probably looks like he's an atheist he's very much like the neil DeGrasse Tyson, where he doesn't believe in the mystical, and he downplays it, and neither does the government. Well, but it's interesting to see how that, in this transcript that, that we keep referring to, it's interesting to see like how that stuff kind of changes. You know, how like the evolution of the character, yeah. how they how they fine tune it by the time they actually write the script and they make the movie, because they talk about that of like he's interested in the occult, which means that he he's constantly going after these like supernatural items. But then, but it seems like by, he debunks it a little. But bit. by the time you get to the movie, and he's sitting with Marcus, and Marcus is like, and he's like, "What are you trying to scare me?" He's like, "This, you know, to him, the Ark is just another artifact." Yeah. 
and even the government is, you know, the government doesn't give two craps about it, but it's clear that the government's only interest in it is because if Hitler's interested in it, we want it. Yeah. You know, and that's a very good way to just expedite anything because the government, it's going to be really hard for the government to believe that in the fantastic element of the arc. Yeah. But if the Nazis have an interest in it and they want it, and, and the, if the legend says, you know, well, we want it first, you know. So it starts off like you love, the clock, the race kind of a thing. And they also, um, then the last 10 pages of this transcript end up being between Kasdan, uh, maybe even Phil Kaufman comes back, and then a third person, a woman, and they're talking more about the history of the arc itself. And they start, they really... Um, kind of uh, compare it to Lord of the Rings. And they're saying, like, the idea behind it is with the Ark, it's like the ring. Whoever has the ring has the inherent power the ring has. And that's kind of the idea behind the Ark. If you have the Ark, then your armies or yourself will have the yeah. inherent power of the Ark, which is very interesting. I and also mentioned at some point, symbolically, you know, there's this idea that the Ark, you know, whether, it, I don't remember if it's in the actual Bible, or but, so that, but there's this notion, uh, at least in some of this, reading of pre-production stuff of development stuff that like uh the ark's not supposed to come back until the next messiah comes and so also like symbolically if hitler had it then it's like proving that he's the next the messiah ne the next messiah yeah. that he and then it would just further like you know prove his right for like global domination in a way yeah and they and they cite a bunch um at the time there was that love show that you and i love in search of with leonard nimoy and they're talking about yeah. like the other night there was a i told george there was an episode on <laughs> you know the uh, dead sea scrolls and it's right up our alley and you know in real life hitler was going after the spear of destiny which was a, the spear that when uh when jesus was up on the cross crucified there a roman guard speared him in the side and that spear was taken away and hidden, and that supposedly had this huge power, and there's been complete books written on it. So Hitler was really, and that's another thing that they that they point out, uh, which is a great kind of angle to come from in the last 10 pages of this this transcription, that, that everyone always looks at the Nazis and Hitler, particularly from a political angle, yeah. where the Nazis and Hitler were also looking at things from like a Wagnerian kind of an angle, like the uh, Wagner, where it's like they're looking at it from a mystical you know, folklore angle stuff. That's why they brought in the Wagner music or they appropriated the swastika, I think, from Roman times or whatever. It, it used to be like Celtic a, or something. Yeah, it was. It didn't mean, it meant like a peace symbol or divinity. And then the red is from, is the, of the Nazi, the flag is socialism, you know. So uh, they, they bring all these elements in because they thought they were going to be, uh, you know, Hitler had the idea of not only them being the next, like you're saying, the Messiah, powerful you know uh literally but they wanted to have all this mythos behind them to help them with you know the the, the stuff of yeah. all over the world and i love that aspect of it yeah well, i mean there's all kinds of things you know i mean there's entire documentaries about hitler and his fascination with the occult yeah but then there's also like the ancient aliens type like, oh yeah yeah where like they were they, you know that a lot of yeah. they, they beat you know they've invented the rocket because they were dealing with like alien technology that they ended up you know securing it's yeah it's, it's uh, fascinating all the you know like the the uh you know all the le like legends I'm trying to think of the word like not controversy but uh conjecture the uh, speculation conspiracy type of stuff happened, that has to do with you know, like what why was going in, on behind the scenes why like in the renaissance you have like pictures of jesus and there's like an alien uh, UFO yeah but up like in the corner, all this stuff you know? that, but then like transposing all that into like the nazis and, yeah 
Well, I've always said those fascinations with stuff over the years. Were with me technically with a story. You know, a movie could be all right, but you add the Nazis trying to find the occult. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, well, I love that. That's funny because, like, when the first thing you told because we were a little behind the scenes of uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, we decided like, oh, well, let's do. Indiana Jones, but which one do you want to do? And Dan's like, well, you know, Temple of Doom is my favorite, but that's like the one that's not about Nazis. I know. Yeah. And I, the reason... <laughs> it goes against everything you stand for. What the fuck? Well, you know, I think the reason why I like that one is, um, I mean, to get down to it is, and I know that's a very controversial stance because people... I, I found recently people don't even like the third one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I think that's just fine. People think it's Jump the Shark where it's too uh, comedic. You mean... Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, that's the first. Oh, I'm sorry, Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Yeah. But uh, I like Temple because to me it's like the darkest, and it's, to me it's it's the most one that's like those original serials of the day of mm-hmm. the Tarzan. Definitely, going, is you know that, what I mean. For sure, they, Indy goes to fucking hell, you know, and you have you know ritual sacrifices, child slavery, eating animals, and fucking ripping hearts out of chests, you know. So. Um, and, you know, they talk about, like, they love the old mummy curses from those movies at the time, you know. So let's make it a, like a curse. And, you know, that that's a great thing. And then uh, they end up coming with, the, basically, they have the entire, literally, they have the, when this transcript is done, they have the entire beat structure of the script. They have all the major scenes, the opening scene. And they talk about, well, the opening scene. Look at the Bond movies. There's always an opening scene before the credits that really has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but it sets up the character. We can do that here. Yeah. So that's why we have uh, Indian Peru at the beginning going after the idol, which they shot in Hawaii, which is funny because they literally shot that right where they end up shooting Jurassic Park, you know, 20 years or 15 years later, you know, in the same virtual area. So there's a lot of stuff that they ended up doing um, using in this movie like Tunisia they shoot that replaces Cairo because they were just in Tunisia for Star Wars and even the scene at the end where they're in the um, canyon and, and uh, Harrison Ford's threatening to, to shoot a rocket launcher or blow up the arc that's actually where the sand people kidnap yeah. Uh, R2-D2, you know, and, and you know, so it's, it's funny how they reuse. They didn't want to go to Cairo. They were worried, but they know Tunisia well and all that, you know, they had a, a good working relationship there. So they end up coming with basically the entire script by the end of this thing, you know, and they end up having to take stuff out that they end up using again in uh, Temple, of, uh, Temple of Doom, even to the point where they, they were talking about wanting to do a boat chase, which ends up coming up in Last Crusade, you know, in Venice. So, and then there's another movie, which, which I think we only found out recently that has a very influence since we're at this uh, level now, is this 19, I think it's 54 Charlton Heston movie called Secret of the Incas, yeah. which going back to some months ago when you and I went to the Monster Mania um, convention in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, uh, they have a lot of movies that are out of print and stuff like that. And I picked up a couple movies, the uh, Scarecrow, Rom- uh, Romney Marsh, uh, this, that. And I was looking to fill like, the, you know, it was like five for five dollars. or you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was trying to fill and I saw this Heston movie. I'm like, what's this? Because I like movies of that period. And the guy's like, this is the movie that, that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas don't want you to see. And it's supposedly this controversy. That this movie has never got a proper re-release because too much of the Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark character is based on this Seeker of the Incas Charlton Heston movie that's from 1954. So you and I dug it up. Uh, we watched it. It's on YouTube as well. It's a very good copy on YouTube. Yeah. We can include it on a, on a link in, uh, uh, in the extras of this podcast. And it's got Chuck Heston in it, 
Robert Young, who people love either from Father Knows Best or Marcus Welby. Thomas Mitchell, who is the uncle. Uh, he's a character actor, but he's best known as the uncle in It's a Wonderful Life, the forgetful one. Nicole uh, Mary, um, uh, who just died last year, age 90, in 2016. She's in The Day of the Triffids, but she's in this movie. And... Uh, there's another woman in this too, which I'll get to in a second. But this is a movie that takes place in Peru, and it's about Chuck Heston plays this guy, Harry, I forget his last name. Steele, I think. Yeah, Steele with an E at the end. And he's just... Harry Steele. Harry Steele. <laughs> I'm Harry Steele. I'm going to take you on a tour. And he's basically, it's kind of like the Wages of Fear idea where he's stuck in this, I guess he's stuck in this town along with Thomas Mitchell. And they go out in um, Machu Picchu. Yeah. He goes and gives tours to these different, you know, and, and it's this big cycle of all the rich people who come down to tour. Which is just because I'm fascinated with Machu Picchu, so it's interesting to see a movie with that. It's kind and of that was in, in the 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 story of Secret of the Incas was it was one of the first movies to be shot like the bulk of it on location, and it was one of the first movies to go to Peru and shoot a bulk of it in Peru, and it really spiked the tourist industry because after this movie, people started to go to Peru to check out Machu Picchu, yeah. you know, um, but. Charlton Heston's character in this movie is very much in a sense of indie of his clothes and how he looks. He's got the hat. He's got the jacket. Yeah, he's got I'm, the I'm pants. I'm interested because we watched it, but yeah. we didn't talk about it because we were going to save it for this. Um, he's got the five o'clock uh, shadow, which is very Aside from a visual aesthetic, I personally don't see hardly any, you know, like the, okay, it's an adventure movie. There's like an ancient artifact. You they know, have the, the map room. I, there's a there's a scene with that they have to position like in, in Raiders where they have to position something right to find out where something's going to be. There's like you yeah, know, but other than a couple of minor things like that, I mean, because you know uh, Deborah Noodleman Landis, who's John Landis's um, wife, yeah, and oddly enough, this is an off. Mike type of thing. <laughs> you really, you recently like, is this the Max Landis that we went, to, that we know? Yeah, and it's not. It's their son. The one oh, that was that was that Landis. Yeah. Well, that's funny. So they have a son named Max Landis, who I think is a screenwriter. I saw something on Twitter, and we went to school with a, a Max Landis, who now is a producer in reality TV. So I saw someone tweet something, so I sent it to him, Blake, saying, "Is this the guy we know and love?" And he's like, "No." I was like, "Oh, okay," because it kind of looked like him. Uh, so she, apparently, she said in an interview, uh, Deborah. Landis, that uh, we watched this film together as a crew several times, and I, I always thought it's strange that the filmmakers did not credit it later as the inspiration for the series, and quipped that the film is, quote-unquote, almost a shot-for-shot Raiders of Lost Ark. I, I, I disagree with that thoroughly. Which I totally disagree but with. But I do, there's there's a lot of elements here where they she specifically cites that they got his look from from this movie. Yeah. And but I also wonder like if that look was well, now we have the the Jim Steranko connection. Yeah. You but also I, I, yeah, but also like I wonder if his look in Secret of the Incas is also just a look because like a quarter main kind of a look. Yeah, like you it's know? from well, it's, it's very either, much. It's either a stereotype or they took it from something else. Also, I mean, it's very. Indy looks a lot like him in this movie too. Well, it's a leather extent. jacket and you a know. fucking fedora. Yeah, but, but he's got the khaki pants. But he's got the the white shirt. You know, I mean, it's I mean, so much so that there he's got the five o'clock shadow, which they didn't do at the time. Yeah, you know, I just it but, seems like it's not. My my point Seems like here, it was probably a pretty common look. Yeah, but they're they're citing it though. You know, I mean, she's saying that she got the look for. You're right. It could be for the time if you're going to go exploring down there. This could be a way. 
a couple years ago, you and I went to the one of these, what is it, the Marketplace Comic Book Convention in New York City here? Yeah, the New York City Comic Book Market. That's now at the Philadelphia Hotel. It used to be at the New Yorker Hotel. And th- this the year... Pennsylvania Hotel. The Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania Hotel. Uh, that year, Jim Steranko was there, the legendary Marvel artist. He's an artist, and he's he's amazing. He's like a Frank Vazetta kind of like a guy who's like, you know, he's he's in his he was in his 80s, and he's still jacked. You know, and he was an escape artist in his early days. He became an <laughs> artist. Steranko you know, is an interesting character. Yeah, Probably the best least. known for his work with uh, on Nick Fury. Yeah. Comics. And uh, he was one of the original people that Spielberg commissioned, along with, I think, Ralph McQuarrie, to do concept art. So the reason I bring him up is that the day we went, we, you know, he was there and he was signing stuff and he had uh, a couple beautiful pieces. Like that prints he, of some of his, of his indie stuff. Indie concept art that was done prior to them even having this transcript conversation, I think, you know. And uh, I had him sign something, but then he said to me, like, what's your name? And I said, my name's Dion. He goes, ah, he goes, he goes, do you know the picture? And he said a name of a movie, and I don't remember the name of it now. And I go, I go, I don't know the name of that. And he goes, that's with Tyrone Power, and Tyrone Power's name, and it's Dion, D-I-O-N, just like yours. And we start talking back and forth, and we start, I had just watched um, Violent Saturday with uh, Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine, and he was like, oh, and he, we start talking about that. So reason I'm bringing all this up is, and I, I can even include a picture of him autographing the thing I have on the wall of the great indie picture, is he seems to be a very much a student of the older cinema. Mm-hmm. So I wonder him himself if he was a fan of Secret of the Incas yeah, and just saw how cool Heston looked in it and just said, I'm going to you know take some of that look. Because clearly in the picture, uh, this concept art, Harrison isn't cast yet yeah. as indie. So it has, he has more of an Eastwood, Clark Gable, uh, 40s kind of a look to him. So yeah. I wonder if it was Steranko. I also think Steranko had a run of read of drawing or illustrating covers for Shadow. Oh, the Shadow books. Oh, you're They're right because he might have had young, either reissues or continued stories. Because like, he had some art there. He had a Shadow. He had Sherlock Holmes. He might have even had Houdini. Yeah. And and I was trying to figure out which one best to get. And I was like, I'll just get the Indy because I've always loved that picture of Indy. It was him who did it. So. So I wonder if it was the Steranko influence that brought that look that they said, because they had said before they even ended up casting the movie that Indy's look was complete with yeah, the yeah. fedora hat, with the, with, the, with the jacket, with the pants, the shoes. You know, we can get into what they actually are, the, the names of them later on. So I wonder if Steranko is the one who injected all this. Now, the character in Secret of the Incas, the Heston character, he is a real son of a bitch. Yeah. And they even talk about in the transcript of how far they want Indy to be. Is he is he really a dick? Is he like uh, darker like a Humphrey Bogart from Treasure of Sarah Madre or is he skirting that line? And they say they brought in elements of that when he thinks when Indy thinks Marion died in the movie when he's drinking, that's a little darker. He's drinking. He's that's what they were kind of say. Like, what's his malady? Is he an alcoholic? And it no, we don't want him. We want kids to look up to him, so we want him to be kind of a figure that people, you know. So we want him to have some sort of uh, idealizations, you yeah. know. So uh, Heston's Harry Steele in that movie is certainly on the spectrum of an, of an indie character, but I think he's the extreme to the right where he's. 
that yeah I mean, and then he's once definitely, he, he's he's a scoundrel yeah and even bef- much more so than han solo <laughs> yeah but he ends up changing it's almost the, the scene in that movie where he shaves and he becomes clean shaved and he kind of loses that and he kind of redeems himself because you have the thomas mitchell character who ends up being the bad guy in the movie who's really good in the part uh he he he's really awesome he becomes more of the scoundrel the kind of guy who's like yeah. waited all his life to find this this treasure that's in this uh machu picchu and he's going to kill anybody so he can get it and he becomes almost you know it's almost like his white whale and you know even heston's that's the reason why heston's there too but Mitchell makes it clear, like, you know, you ain't going to get in the way. I'll yeah, kill yeah. you, too. But, I mean, the Heston character, like, in the beginning, he's basically... I mean, we don't need to get too far no. into this other movie because we haven't even really started talking Yeah. <laughs> but just to, uh, uh, to give you the kind of idea of what character he is, is, like, in the beginning, he's dry, He's like a tour guide, and he's dropping these American tourists back off at, like, an airport. And he says something to uh, one of the women, and it's, like, $100 or something. And she's like, you know, some people, some men would find it shameful or whatever to be embarrassed oh, to take money from a woman. Yeah. He's like, it's my favorite. Yeah, he's like, that's the best guy because you know you're working for it. And it's so, it's like, I mean, that. He's like, it smells the sweet. Yeah, and he smells. And it's so, and it's so funny because it's such like an un, you don't see Heston that much in that time, you know. And this is right around the time that Heston, and he's speaking a lot of Spanish. And like in the next couple of years, he ends up being, um, What's his face from Touch of Evil, you know, with Orson Welles. So it's a it's a very interesting character. The last before we leave Secret of the Incas, and I I, th- I think we would agree that you suggest indie fans to check it out. Oh, I enjoyed you know, the movie. I just don't think it was as it, I don't see as much of it as they're saying. I mean, there's certain there are definitely there are definitely things. Yeah, but I don't see it as being like. They put the kibosh on it because they don't want to see that they stole yeah, this the, movie. Yeah, the idea that, that people have been saying in these conspiracy theories that, like, it's never going to see the light of day because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to get the credit. You I know? mean, it's clear that they saw the movie and that yeah. they knew the movie. And who, but, but they probably borrowed as much, if not more, from so many other of cereal, things. the Republic cereals, yeah, especially. From yeah, so many yeah. other sources. Yeah. To say that this was, like, the primary thing uh i just i don't buy that there yeah. are certainly definitely i mean like undeniably yeah it, it seems like it was somewhat of an influence uh in the exact but, location but I, I mean i did enjoy it yeah <laughs> I, I, I i thought it was great i thought the acting was stellar they have a singer in the movie and at the time she was a capital she was signed to capital records her name is uh yama sumar i hope i'm pronouncing that right and through the movie she has this theme that she sings in it and it's called the uh, Yate Pura, A T A Y P R A R A T A Y P U R A. That's the name of the song. And she was a singer at the time and she sings this kind of music. Now, when the movie started, I instantly recognized the song. I'm like, how the hell do I know this song? And it's the mo- song that's in the ba- Big Lebowski. You know, in the Big Lebowski, when they go to see Treehorn mm-hmm. and you see the people are on the beach and they're, they're naked and they're on the trampoline. Yeah, and yeah. you're, that's the song. It's the, yeah. So, through the entire movie, that song played into the theme, and then she sings it at some point. So it's either that the Coen brothers uh, coincidentally 
stumble upon the song because it was, you know, she was a hot singer who was ethnic and was signed to Capitol at the time. So she's probably big in the 50s, like the Calypso kind of an era. Or they knew that movie well enough and they added that in. But it's funny to see that this movie that is not had an official release that is, you know, out of print, we're talking about it because of relation to Raiders of the Lost Ark, has this song in it by this singer who then it shows up in this cult classic movie, The Big Lebowski, that's actually on the Big Lebowski soundtrack. What is that? 50 years later, yeah, you know? Yeah. So there's a connection that no one knew about, but as soon as we saw it, I was like, holy shit, you know, that's the <laughs> song by this uh, Yuma Sumar. So very interesting. Um, yeah. So check that out, you know, and uh, that's all the time we have left tonight. <laughs> we'll leave you guessing. I do want to say, you know, I don't know how much of the actual plot we need to dive into. I would assume that this is one movie that we can safely assume. Let's hope so. The vast majority of people that listen to our show have seen. Yeah. Uh, and But there's still, you know, tons of things to talk about. Uh, you know, of course... Um, we start hitting now. We're now we're rolling over. We're turning the record over. We're getting into the like actual production Raiders. and stuff. Yeah. But uh, one thing I do love about India, the character of Indiana Jones, uh, and, and they do talk about it a bit when you know all this is kind of discussed in that transcript that we were uh, referencing. But he is, he's like a reluctant hero, you know. He's he's Han Solo. I mean, he's. He has a goal, and because of his goal, he gets wrapped up in all this other shit, but that's not what he's there for. But he's also a guy who's kind of always in just over his head. You know, like, he's always... Well, I love the idea. You know, he's always, like, just in it a little too deep, but manages it to be resourceful enough to be able to overcome the obstacles. Yeah. But he's always, like, trying to climb... You know, he's he's going against... Uh, Everything, you know. You but know. It, but it's, but yeah, what I love about it, and, you know, and you know uh, off mic an idea that I've written uh, uh, a story very similar to this, um, this kind of an idea that I love that it's a fantastical, a fairy tale kind of an adventure. But what they try to do is they try to make it as realistic as possible so that you won't question the elements that are that, you know, that this would never happen or this is yeah. too fantastic. So you have these, you know, you always, at the end of the day, you kind of know that nothing will ever happen to Indy. But he gets in these situations that like are completely sometimes implausible, unbelievable. But he's sometimes, like you're saying, he gets out. He yeah. gets over well, his head. He's always you know. the underdog. You know, unlike, say, and not to say that, like, Bond and the Stallones and the Arnold Schwarzeneggers, clearly they're for conflict, they have to be in peril, and you have to believe that they're in danger. Yeah. But there's something about Indy, like, he's the everyman version of that, even much more so than Bruce Willis and, like, Die Hard. You know, but, like, he's the guy that, I don't know, it's like... He's not a superhero, in, but he in, is in the way. But yeah. yet, he's uh, he he's almost like you know. You get to the extreme of by the end of the eighties, you have the the Bruce Willis or Mel Gibson in Die Hard or um, Lethal Weapon, where you know by the end of the movie they're getting the sh- that was in their script. They get the shit kicked out of them. You know, yeah, he's yeah. walking around. Ah, he's got glass. He's being, so it's like, but you get that in this movie where like you know Indiana Jones gets the crap kicked out of him. He gets you know he gets re- literally you know. Um, dragged from the back of a truck, you know? Yeah. But he's able to, like, so he is, he isn't a superhero in the sense where things don't hurt him or affect him, but he is a superhero in the sense where he's over to, to I guess, overcome every adversity that is posed he's against just, him. He's just, he's, he's a very human character. Yeah. And in that way, it ends a lot of credibility, lends a lot of credibility and kind of believes it yeah. in reality a little bit. You know, uh, and it's, 
it's it's going right after what I love that you mentioned a little while ago that I love stories that have an element of nonfiction in them. Yeah. And that I think is another element that lends credibility that, you know, Hitler's in it. Hitler was real. Yeah, Nazis yeah. were real. The era was real. So we will tie this story around a semi-believable era. And uh, the thing that, it, which is, again, I hate to keep on referencing this transcript and I, I urge everybody who's it's a fan to read it, yeah. but to see the evolution of that character because while they're talking and they're fleshing out this character there's a lot of talk of like he's the fortune he's a soldier of fortune and he's he's stealing these artifacts so that he can sell them to museum to support like a playboy lifestyle yeah well that was or, another yeah so they like, start saying how what is he doing with them is he but is he time, selling them or is he yeah you know or is he is he honorable or is he is he pillaging these desecrating but these sites? The, by the time it comes around to the movie uh, it's his, his, his goals are true. Yeah, it's the preservation of these things. Yeah, they, be- they belong in a museum. It belongs in a museum, and they, and they, they and it's use such that a beautiful as a, thing. They use that as a brilliant dichotomy to a foil to the bad guys, the yeah, adversaries, the because Bollock. yeah, those are the guys who they they say in the transcript will take a vase. That's uh, you know three thousand years old. Will shatter it and then sell pieces of it because they know they can make more money of it. So yeah. they don't care that the vase itself is. They want to be able to to make as much money as they can. But off I also of it, think you know. we're coming out of we're coming out of Watergate. We're coming out of Vietnam. You know, this is a time when people are starting to get jaded by things and to have like this the escapism. Well, escapism, but also to have this virtuous hero. Yeah. Where, like, he's not in it for profit, ultimately, in the film. Yeah. You know, even though they kind of ran through those scenarios. Well, he even um, sometimes tells himself he is. But I guess what, what will trip him up is maybe his heart of gold under it all. He's yeah. Like, he's all, because, Cause, but he's like, you know, but when they're done with it, we can put it in the museum, right? Yeah. You know, like, at the end of the day, what he's doing is the preservation of history uh, so that it can be studied and it can be looked at. I mean, ultimately, his goals are true, and yeah. I think that's in a, in a, especially now in a time that's even more jaded. I think it's what helps lend longevity to it. It's very. It's almost. It's it's admirable. Yeah, like you it's know, it's helped there, to make it. You know, true escapism. And it's interesting that they do go through that. You know, is he more of a darker character like the Charlton Heston from Secret Incas or yeah. like uh, Humphrey Bogart and Sierra Madre? Or is he more of a lighter character? And, you know, Bond is an interesting character because Bond ends up being a person, and they discuss this in, in, in this, where there's no a character arc in a Bond movie. Stuff happens around him, and he doesn't really. I mean, you could now argue that when the newer movies, they're trying to do some different things yeah, with, yeah. like, you know, Casino Royale and stuff. But his traditional, which is one of the reasons why, even though nobody talks about it, and everybody kind of cans trashes it for being, like, but Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which with George Lazenby, yeah, on the one movie that had George Lazenby. I like that. Oh yeah, movie yeah, a lot because there is an uh, arc. Yeah, yeah. He like gets he, married he falls it, yeah. in love and yeah, it's fucking Telly Savalas in that movie. Yeah, you Telly Savalas. Who loves a baby? It's one of the reasons why I like that yeah. movie a lot, and that's why it's almost like it's the diamond in the rough of those yeah, movies yeah. because it's he a comes bit in. Of an anomaly, that yeah. One. So they talk about that. He's, you know, Indy is is to a level that kind of character were, but he does have an arc to a certain extent. 
but he is kind of a, a person here who has he has almost like two identities. He's like a Bruce Wayne That's and Batman. Like the next thing you is know? like he's definitely the other thing I love about him, and we we only touch on it very briefly in all of the movies. Yeah, but really, uh, in this one too is this idea of. Uh, him being a professor at a college and stuff, and that he wear, and he works, he dresses proper. He's got glasses, and I think and co- that, even combs his hair. I think in different ways. They, so yeah, even, he very much is, it very much is like a Clark Kent Superman. He's situation. like very scholarly. He's got an alternate ego. They bring up Superman a lot in this. They talk about that, and I don't think they mean Superman as a sense of him being a superhero. But somebody but, does. I think Spielberg. Is yeah, like, it's Clark Kent. He's yeah. Clark Kent when he's at school. You know, he's very and he's he is he's very learned. He's he's on the blackboard. He's he's soft spoken he's he's got a completely different demeanor and i also like that uh there you know i think kasdan is like well how is how important is it that he's been trained you know that it's like and and i think lucas is like i just like that they that everybody when he's not there everybody calls him doctor yeah, were, yeah, what, yeah, what, yeah, they were saying that they said to be, you know, and I love that, like, yeah. seeing that part of the career. Lucas is like, I just want people to call him doctor. They think it'd be cool because that also Dr. adds, a, yeah, that adds a level of sophistication that you don't need to explain. Yeah, yeah. and that's another great idea that we keep hitting on this transcript. They talk about which we say is always clutch is, and they bring it up specifically in this movie. We talk about it a lot in maybe the Terminator podcast is exposition through like action. That's, and that was their main concern in this movie in this in this script. They wanted to keep this running, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They didn't want it to get bogged down. They're talking about when can we lay out exposition, when can we interject some stuff the reader or the audience needs to know. And they're saying the, and they talk specifically about let's have this be happening when we do this. This you know so you you and that's the best. I think we both agree the best time to lay out exposition is when. You're doing it so the audience isn't bored by it. They're not falling asleep. They're not flashing exposition in the lower third. Well, this is a beautiful example of... There was another movie we talked about recently that does an exquisite job of laying down exposition. Um, I mean, we definitely talk about it in Terminator. Yeah, because all the I, exposition in Terminator, like when Reese takes Sarah Connor and he's and there's the big sequence when they're trying to get away from the cops. In the Terminator, he's laying out what the future yeah, world he's is. He's telling Sarah and the audience everything during a car chase. Uh, so we're not bored. Car by chase, it. <laughs> you know, and that's the best kind of you know you do it. The audience is you're, you're, the audience is wrapped up in this other thing, and then you're talking, and they talk about but it there here. There was something specific. Oh, like maybe it was Escape from New York. Could have been Escape from yeah. Because we're talking about like you flew the golf flyer over Leningrad. Oh, we or did whatever. that recently on um, Predator. Maybe we talked yeah. a little about that. Just Predator. the idea of like you the get these one these lo- one liners. I think it was Predator because we're talking about but they we all did their talk own guns. about it in Escape from yes. New York too. The Gulf Fire over Leningrad, yeah, and, yeah. or the thing where you remember uh, Afghanistan. I'm trying oh, yeah. to forget it. You yeah, know, yeah. That, like so, these one lines that say so much but don't about a character and stuff. They give history. Uh, they lend. They show history between characters and and, and everything. And then and this in this case. Yeah, there's a little bit of maybe it's more heavy handed, but when he gets when he goes into the bar and he's talking to Marion uh, about Marion, you know, or even the the, the sequence perfect like, example. I gotta say I'm sorry, but it's like even though that one's a slightly more heavy handed, that exchange we don't need to know what happened. Well, they they have a perfect example here where in the they're talking about. Laying, they have they have a certain amount of exposition they have to give you about the arc without boring the audience. So they do a little at the beginning, where they they, they play on it. Where the 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 special agents, the OSS, they know about it, but then Indy one ups them saying, "Oh, I know more," and then he kind of tells them about it. So it's like that's the one way they do exposition. There's another scene where they're they're talking about um, over the dates. 
you know, the scene with the monkey, mm-hmm. you know, and they're talking about how are we going to keep that entertaining? Well, how about if the food's poisoned yeah. and they're playing around with the food? So it's almost that old Hitchcock idea with the bomb under the table. Mm-hmm. You know, the audience is worried about the, you know, it's, there's tension there, but they're talking about stuff the audience needs to know. You know, we have the great Frank Welker show up because he's the voice of the monkey and, and all that, who ends up, he does the monkey in Aladdin, he's a poo, you know, and he's, you know, even with the yeah, Sikh yeah. Heil and stuff. So you have that great idea of the exposition being thrown out in such a way. And um, they talk about it at the very beginning too, like, is India Playboy? Is he kind of like a ladies' man, which we naturally know he is because you could see all the ladies swooning over him, but they had a deleted scene where you see Marcus walking up. If you watch in the hallway, Marcus walks up to the classroom. And there's a girl walking by. She's got books. And he's like, oh, hello. And that girl's waiting to talk to Dr. Jones. So we have Dr. Jones in the classroom doing a lecture. We have that really funny sequence that, you know, the girl has love you on her eyelids. You know, mm-hmm. and he, it kind of confuses him. I always got the impression that, like, uh, the, it's, you know, if you look at it's funny. When you look at the reversal of the, everyone in the class, most of the class is girls. There are some guys. The girls are like all like yeah, paying attention. Over him, yeah. You know? And I always thought it, me growing up watching this, we never even got into how he discovered these movies, our personal history with these movies. But I always thought watching this that it was like he's the reluctant good guy. You know, he's not looking for it, but they're just swooning all over him where they were thinking like maybe he is kind of a ladies' man. He's having, you know, hence with Marion, 10 years earlier, he had a relationship with his student. Maybe he does this every once in a while. And there was a deleted scene when he, he leaves the class and with Brody, he walks out with all those maps. They cut really quickly, but that girl's going to come out and say to him, oh, Dr. Jones, can we have, and he's like, yes, you can come over tonight and have study time or whatever. And then Marcus is like, well, not tonight because he's going to be doing something. Well, I thought it was at noon in that scene. It could have been something, but th- that scene extends. He's like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to meet. Yeah, and he's like, tomorrow, he's like, whatever. Well, I can't right now. And he's like, well, I'm going to be in my office at noon. Noon or something. Or something. So come then. And you know, and she's she's head over heels gorgeous. And then later on. like I'm just saying, to me, it wasn't an implication like he was going to have some kind of rendezvous with him. Oh, no, I didn't. But I think he, but I think she might have been yeah, yeah. trying to. Oh, no, clearly. I yeah. Mean, she's trying to facilitate. From everybody in the. All the girls in the classroom that they all think he's dreaming. Yeah, because like a scene or two later when they're in Indy's house, there is another scene they cut where there's a girl in the other room, and that's why he's dressed in such a way. He's putting the the silk bathrobe on quickly and stuff because he's got a girl in the other room, but they cut that kind of out, and who knows if that's the same girl. It's probably a student or some sort of girl they had over the house. So there was an idea quickly on, is he a ladies' man? Is he a playboy? Well, maybe he is, but we just will play the, the undertone of that. And we get into, very quickly, we get the plot moving. There's the Ark. There's the Nazis want it. Um, we, we establish from the first scene, uh, what's his face? Who's the bad guy? The, the, the Paul, Paul F- what's his name Freeman. character? Paul Freeman. Who has they, they Balak. Balak. We have Balak in the first scene. They wanted to cast a guy that could go opposite him. That, and, and he has, they were looking for like almost like a Paul Newman with the kind of the eyes. And they find this guy, Paul Freeman. They say he's great to be the antithesis yes. of Bond. The Udo Kier of this movie. Yeah. And then, you know, when he, uh, it was interesting. We just did Predator a month ago. And as soon as uh, you have the scene with the, you know, he runs away from the natives. And when uh, Balak holds the idol up. All the he goes, and then all the natives start running after him. Yeah. You get a Billy laugh, you know. So it was, very, it was very interesting. And then all of a sudden, you have that scene where he's, and it's it's all played for comedy, all that stuff. Where he's, you know, remember with the tarantulas, and they talk about with you have Alfred Molina in the beginning there, and like you know, and all that. Uh, the sound effects, you know, that's a very big thing in this movie. Well, the, the sound of the whip, the sound of the gun, yeah, the yeah. punches. Well, this is you know, um, Ben Burt, who's kind of a legend 
in uh, sound design, he worked on Star Wars. So he's the ones that create. He created like the Wookiee sounds and the lightsabers. So he is a confidant of Lucas. So he comes back and he does uh, this movie. He does Raiders of the Lost Ark. Interesting. And you can actually read a lot about the history of sound uh, in this way in my book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest uh, Composers, because Alan Howarth, who's a legend in post-production sound, not just music, talks a lot about the history of the title sound design. For instance, the credit sound design didn't exist before Apocalypse Now. Basically, um, that would have been like considered a pretentious title before that. They had the, Foley artists? The idea that like there was one person, you know, when you had... Uh, all these other aspects of sound, but there was one person that designed everything that was kind of considered pretentious. But Walter Murch, who was the editor and, and quote-unquote sound designer of Apocalypse Now, uh, Francis Ford Coppola gave him kind of that credit because of his influence on the movie. Um, and Walter Murch is a kind of a, a legendary editor in his own right. But so it's interesting that that was 1979. So the idea of that there was a sound designer didn't exist when he was working on Star Wars. Uh, kind of supervising sound editor would have been more the credit then. But so you had these people that would do Foley. Uh, then you would have uh, special sound effects, which is more of what Alan was known for, which is kind Howarth, of yeah. Alan Howarth, which is kind of the stuff that you can't just go record. So Alan, for instance, created all of the sounds of the Enterprise for the first six Star Wars movies. Because those are things like... Door opening. Yeah. The, 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 that sound pads. didn't really yeah. exist. The or warp the, drive. The sound of the of the Enterprise going from you know warp one to warp five wasn't a sound that you could record. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Ben Burt has become a legend because of his... Well, you see that angle here where they could very easily go just get a sound effect of a punch. But instead, they want to design an Indiana punch. Yeah. And it has such a... Now you think about it. The elements of this, the sound effects in these movies have such a unique, they almost have a life of their own. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a punch being thrown in an Indiana Jones movie is an Indiana Jones sounding punch. Yeah. So Ben Burt was kind of the uh, pusher of that, which is like, let's not use the stock library sounds that we've used in every movie for the last hundred years, yeah. you know, 81 years. Let's do our own sounds. So they went out and they recorded all kinds of things. So, for instance, Indy's gun. When Indy shoots his gun, he shoots a revolver. You probably know more of what model gun or whatever that is. But the sound of Indy's gun is this is a thirty thirty Winchester rifle. Yeah, it's a, it's a that's a heavy duty rifle, thirty thirty. <laughs> you know, and you can and you hear it. Yeah, that's that's the sound of a thirty thirty. But it's it's getting back to the Dirty Harry idea that we talked about on the Dirty Harry podcast, or maybe another one around that time of that. You know. Dirty Harry has a sound that goes yeah. with him and his gun and his magnum, his forty-four magnum. And then sometimes there's the idea of even if he picks up another gun in the yeah. room, he's going to shoot Which it. Which I think might have come up because there might be remastered versions of it. Yeah, Same and, with and, Jaws, and Ma where they, Magnum Force, where they reach, they redo the sound effects and make it five point one, and you lose those original sound effects. So there's this idea, like in earlier versions of Magnum Force, when he's on the airplane. And he picks up, and he's using somebody else's gun. He's, he's not using, using like his a thirty-eight. Gun. Yeah, it's just the sound. But In then, earlier cuts of the of the movie, when he fires that gun, even though it's not his gun, yeah. it makes the same sound. No matter what Harry Callahan shoots, yeah, it's going to sound the like sound a forty-four it's mag. Make. Yeah, but 
in remasters of it, they've replaced it with a more accurate Yeah, to whatever that gun is. So, uh, but that eliminates some subtle, subliminal storytelling aspects of it, which is unfortunate that that has come because everybody thinks remastered, remastered, remastered means better. Not always. Which is not always the case. But it's just some things just to see what kind of mind has to go into being a Ben Burt. Um, Like the punching. You know, they they used... They took leather jackets, they took uh, and baseball gloves, and, and they took a bat, and they just slammed the bat against a, 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 a pile of baseball mitts yeah. and leather jackets. They get that. It's a certain kind Doof. of way of thinking that you have to be able to. It's interesting to you have to be able to think about things without the visual. Like what is what can make this sound that's going to sell this? So like the boulder, for instance, they tried all kinds of things. They had boulders made, constructed. They tried rolling all these things, and then they were just in like a Honda Civic station wagon, and they were just coasting and uh, on gravel. And Ben Burt's like, you know what? Let's just do. Let me put the mic out. So he he put the mic out and he put the mic like at the back tire. And, and they, they put just, the car in neutral and they just rolled and they down the just coasted down a hill. And because it was going down a hill, it built momentum. And that's basically the the basis of the sound of the boulder at the beginning of the movie. But the sound design is such an important part of the of of cinema in general. Sound is we think of sound as being a very visual medium, but it's really a 50-50. Um, it's almost a lost art to a certain extent because you and I always praise the medium of radio. And you think of back in the old days, specifically if you and I would listen to that show Suspense, mm-hmm. that theater of the mind, you're, you're listening to everything in your head, and it's amazing to think that there is really just two actors in front of an audience in front of some mics with a, with a script in their hands, and then next to them there's a a table with these two Foley artists who have every sound there. They open a door. It's them having, you know, and, and they're walking. They're, you know, yeah. so it's like, like you're saying that you have to delineate, close your eyes and think uh, abstractly, what can I use to make the sound that I think yes. I, that it's going to actually be? So they may use for, in the old days, for like horses running, they just take two coconuts and put them to the, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Or like this or that, you know, so it's amazing if like uh Someone getting shot, they take maybe like broccoli and they cry. Or like, <laughs> yeah, that's bones yeah. breaking. So it's, it's sure. so weird to get that. Now, Ben Burt's other, besides from Star Wars and then, of course, this movie, Ben Burt's uh, other big significant contribution to the film world is that he's the one that brought the Wilhelm scream. Back into to, back, to, to, back in, into, in vogue. Yeah, and he's the one that reportedly named it the Wilhelm scream. Um, for people who don't know what the Wilhelm scream is. The, the Wilhelm scream, for those who don't know, and I'm sure there are some super big movie aficionados that do, there's this one stock piece of audio. That goes back to like the 30s. That right? was originally recorded for 1951's oh, okay. Distant Dream. And... Uh, and some the, dude screaming. And, the, and it was just the sound of this guy, like, like yeah. this really unique yell. And I think in the scene, it's like people getting eaten by alligators. Or in the something. original movie. In the original yeah. movie. And it's voiced, the guy who did the Wilhelm scream is a guy named uh, Shelby Frederick Woolley, or Sheb Woolley, who was an actor, a voice actor, and a singer. And his, he's best known for the novelty song, The Purple People Eater. 
oh, in yes. 1958. Yes. So he's the one that voiced. He's actually, I think, in that movie. But then he came back for audio recordings, and they just did lots of yells and stuff. And that one kind of clicked with people, and that would get brought up every once in a while. And it later was featured uh, in a movie called The Charge at uh, Feather River. Where the character that did that yell, even though it wasn't Sheb Woolley, was Private Wilhelm. Oh, and, that hence- and that's I ha- that's where I think Ben Ben Burt knew that yell from, and so he named that the Wilhelm scream. And now it's been over. It's been in over three hundred movies. Yeah, it's almost like it's in TV all the time. It's and- almost a cliche at this point because you hear it all the time. If you're if you know it, you'll hear it all the time. And Ben Burt brought it back, and he used it in Star Wars for a uh, a stormtrooper. But then it's also used in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where a Nazi soldier falls off the back of the mo- of a moving car. And so uh, Ben Burt, for nothing, for no other reason, is the one that kind of revitalized the Wilhelm scream and named it for it. <laughs> and now that's a thing now. That's like an actual yeah, yeah, phenomenon, the Wilhelm scream. That's a big scream, phenomenon. And, you know? and it's in every indie movie, I think, too. You know, It gets used all the time. I know. I, I used to throw it in sometimes when I was doing educational videos. Uh, so if, there was, if there was a place for it. I haven't seen Temple or Last Crusade in so long to know where they are, but I did see the scene recently in... Uh, Crystal Skull and it's the scene where they're in New Haven at the very end of that New scene. New Haven! New Haven! <laughs> at, at the very end of that scene where he's Jerry on the... Lu- God, God, rest God, in peace. God bless Jerry Re- Lewis. Rest in peace, Jerry yeah. Lewis. Uh, who both of us had had interaction with, but that's for yes, another day. That's for another day. Um, at the end of that sequence when they uh, he's on the back of the bike, they slide into a library mm-hmm. and then when they go into the slide, there's a kid with some books there and the kid throws the books in the air he gives the Wilhelm scream. You know, you'll hear it there. And the other aspect of any soundtrack to a movie is the music. Yes. And of course... And now we're se- segueing to, to Mr. Williams. We have one of the most iconic film themes of all time. All time. Which is by John Williams. And of course, John Williams had worked with Lucas on Star Wars. Yeah. and uh, But he only worked on Star Wars because he had worked on Jaws for Spielberg. And, Spiel- and uh, Spielberg recommended him to Lucas. So we have this ongoing collaboration between Spielberg, Lucas, and, and John Harrison Williams. Ford, too. Oh, we'll talk it to him, too. Yeah. Um, so we got the trifecta. It's like a troop. <laughs> and what, what, since we're here with Williams... Um, Williams initially writes two pieces that he goes to Spielberg and says, hey, yeah. it's, it's either the dan da dan dan and then it's like dan 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 which one do you like? And Spielberg's like, can you do both? So one becomes the, the what is it? The, the, like the bridge. The, one becomes of. the bridge and one becomes the theme or whatever you yeah, call yeah. that. But they, he kind of combines them into one piece of music. I mean, back then especially... It was very much what they would do. Uh, you know, the somebody would the composer would come up with options. Yeah, and then often, you know, nowadays it's changed because of synthesizers and computers and stuff. But back then, John Williams probably just played the melodies for him on the piano and was like, "Well, here's what I have," and it would be we'll consider it'll be like a march. You know, imagine it being a march, and then the strings would play this, and he would kind of describe it as he played it. Like this is this instrument's going to play this part, Um, and so that's the big thing of this movie is that he says, "I have these two options." Spielberg's like, "I kind of like them both. Can we just use them both?" And so they they get kind of they get kind of combined. Now, there's you know, obviously Williams has a big style, and there's a lot of people that 
you know, we talked about how there's people that diss Spielberg, there's people that diss Lucas, there's people that say they stole this movie from that Charlton Heston movie, and there's a lot of people that say that John Williams steals all oh, yeah. his stuff heard this. from other composers. Yeah, there's, there's a real uh, book-read people who are, you know... Um, music people who can you know write scores out and stuff that they can actually cite you know uh, classical music where he's stealing this and that and you know I haven't researched too much into that there could be a level of truth to it but I wonder if it's more of like you know basically you could essentially make the argument here that Raiders of the Lost Ark is stolen from all those well, other movies well that's kind of the thing it's an homage as opposed to a ripoff like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, they're... Rocketeer. Yeah, but, I mean, in terms of specifically the movies that he's scored, they're homages to past things. So it's not... It doesn't seem out of the ordinary that he would play on familiar territory to kind of uh, bring these... I mean, he cites an example, too, where, uh, you know, they're looking for to, to be pulpy, even to be... Uh, to make a chuckle. So there's yeah. th- th- there's a scene where they introduce the Nazi character, and they say back in the old days there would be a, a particular series of notes that would that was very cliched. That yeah, like yeah. this is the heavy guys, and he does that in when they introduce uh, Toth. Yeah, it uh, gets really kind of heavy handed. Yeah, and, but and it's, it's they're playing into that tongue in cheekness of that, what the movies yeah striving for, and it works perfectly. And people like you know, and and there's probably what. Three, four, five pieces of music in this movie. Yeah. Just, well, you hear one, them anywhere. I love the the love theme. Yeah, that's the, with the strings the and Marian it's just and, yeah, and you know it's very reminiscent of like the Princess Leia theme. Yeah, uh, in in mood, in feel, not necessarily in melody, but it does. It's similar, lush, uh, but it's so gorgeous because they don't make love in this movie. So you need a piece of you well, need they something. Do, finally, on the boat. Um. But, you know, there's nothing... I mean, there's no sexy yeah, 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 yeah. and It's implied. And the music is just this thing that, one, kind of binds them together, creates a romantic atmosphere and all this stuff. But I love that, that, that kind of that Marion love theme. It's so gorgeous. And in only the way that Williams could do it. Like, he's so specific. And that's the thing is, you know, we talk about auteurs and filmmaking and of course musicians and composers and songwriters have their own style but Williams is such a distinct voice and because he's so popular and he's scored so many iconic blockbuster movies it's like his music is ingrained in all of us yeah yeah. and I think like most people our age had the Star Wars soundtrack on vinyl growing up but their parents bought it or whatever uh it's his music is very much the uh, part of the soundtrack of like my life. I mean, you even you have know? at the time stuff like Star Wars. The the music was being copied and arranged in different other. They had a disco version. Had, yeah, you know, so yeah, it was it was being assimilated. Mecca, the band Mecca was yeah. doing all these. Disco so you had versions. these other. You know, in Indiana Jones is you could play that anywhere in the world and people will know that theme. You know, I mean, I love the, the for instance the arc in this movie, the arc mm-hmm. bit where it's like the very intrigue, the mystery. You know yeah. that you play that people will know. I mean, there's a lot of cues in this that are so famous now, much like I think the majority of the Star Wars or Empire music is where you or Jaws you play. Uh, I mean, his scores are iconic. Yeah, you know, you play a good amount of that. Probably among them. You know, if you were to take, like, the 10 most iconic scores or film themes of all time, 
you know, you would have stuff like Gone with the Wind, and you'd have all these other movies, but but Williams would occupy like half of that list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. I mean, you know, and it and it, and it he really adds a level here of of that you you wouldn't really had. He does a lot of you know um, brings a lot to the table of filling out along with the sound effects. You know, the diegetic sound, the non-diegetic sound, his score really helps sell the era that the movie's supposed to be in, the the genre, and the the adventurous, that's what sure. you're going for, you know? Yeah, so that's like he did with Star Wars. I feel like Star Wars is a movie that... The music does so much for that movie. You know, it adds like gravitas. It yeah. adds weight. What you it, need. It adds credibility yeah. to that movie. And that's all and things does he does that, here. It yeah. does it here too. It like that big orchestra and like adds credibility and kind of production value and, and makes this movie seem bigger than life. And uh, Williams, I believe his first appearance on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers was Towering Inferno. Maybe, yeah. Did he do Towering? Yeah. I think he might have done Towering Inferno. And then we did the Star Wars movie specials. Uh, yeah. Holiday specials. <laughs> Which he didn't do, didn't he? But yeah. they, he used some of his yeah. themes. And it's like a they, combination of another composer, but also... And then like it's the stuff main. that sounds like it's going to be later on. It turns into some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And this is the only time that the London Symphony Orchestra played Indiana Jones. They did the Raiders stuff the score and then afterward he used other people so yeah. that was the only time that the london symphony orchestra uh used the film here uh you get we we move over to harrison ford here and harrison ford at the time had uh you know everybody knows the story he's a carpenter uh he was acting if a little I, bit if i was a carpenter <laughs> i would build a house um and he did american graffiti uh, with Lucas, he did uh, Star Wars with Lucas. He ran uh, camera he, on uh, The Doors of Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, that's no. the question I want to ask him to see if that's actually true. Because the, the rumor is he was working on Paul Rothschild, the producer's house, doing an edition, and then they needed someone to work camera for the... And he actually supposedly is one of the cameramen in the 1968 Live at the Hollywood Bowl, The Doors uh, concert. But... He's acting in the 70s. Uh, one of the first people Spielberg suggests, he's like, you know, we want a Harrison Ford or like a young Steve McQueen. What do you think about Harrison Ford? And uh, what's his face? Lucas is like, well, I don't want him to turn into my Robert De Niro. Yeah, because he was already in American Graffiti. He was always in Star Wars. He was already in the Star Wars movies. And uh, he didn't, you know, and De Niro had been in a lot of Scorsese movies at the time, so they were looking for somebody else. Uh, it's funny that they test Tim Matheson, <coughs> who um, is Johnny Quest, the voice of Johnny Quest. There's a little mm-hmm. connection there with we always talk very much so with Johnny Quest and this kind of a thing. But Tim Matheson is also in he's in the screen test that they show too. Yeah, but he's also in Animal House, right? Yes, he is in Animal so, House. So because the screen Landis. test they did together was Karen Allen and Tim, Ma- uh, Tim, Tim Matheson, Matheson, and they were both in Animal House. Yeah. So you have he's in her screen test. They have us. Then they 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 look at Tom Selleck. Yeah. And there's a screen test with Tom Selleck, who's doing really good with Sean Young. Yeah. And they're thinking that's a really good dichotomy. Now, then and, they... And apparently Karen Allen also read with, uh, his name, John Shea, maybe? Yes. His last name's Shea for sure. I'm trying... John Shea. Now, John Shea's been in all kinds of stuff. Well, one thing I think our generation would know him best as is he played Lex Luthor in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, so apparently he was also up for the role. Of yeah, Indiana Jones. they offered it to Jeff Bridges. A young Jeff Bridges turned it down at the time. Um, I can kind of see that at the time of you know coming off of 
to, you know, De Laurentiis is King Kong. Uh, so they get in their sights, Tom, uh, Tom Selleck and Tom Selleck's Tom interest, Sizemore. Tom Sizemore at the time. And, <laughs> that uh, would have been an interesting It was choice. really weird. Like a young thing. Well, I mean, he was so young at that time. Uh, but Selleck's interested. They, they, they want to cast Selleck, but Selleck at the time is now um, signed on to do Magnum P.I., and uh, they, CBS won't release him from his contract to go do this movie. Funny enough, they say what ends up happening in the world is that there is an actor strike, and by the time they eat, they, they, and it doesn't affect the production of Indiana Jones because they shoot, like we said, all the movie overseas, either in England or in Tunisia or wherever, but it affects people kind of here in the States. So by the time principal photography is done on Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they haven't even started doing bag to pi it so technically tom Selleck could have done the role yeah, yeah he would have had to shave that mustache or would he have kept the mustache and would we have a mustache mustached indiana jones mm-hmm. so i don't know a mustacheless indiana jones i don't know if i would have been able to trust him <laughs> you know tiana has big trust issues yeah with we should note i mean on a psychological level pat Baya, Dion's dad <laughs> has a mustache yes. and i'm wondering if there was a time where Pat was untrustworthy without a mustache. He's never, it's... well, he's never, I've never <laughs> known him without a mustache. And he's even said to me he doesn't want to shave the mustache for fear he thinks it would never grow back. But I'm like, Dad, I'm sure. But he's kept the mustache for how many, I've known him for 38 years. <laughs> I've been around. And I've known him for 20. Yeah, so. so he's always had that mustache. There's a couple of pictures of him without a mustache in his youth. <laughs> but he's but un- he was untrustworthy. He was untrustworthy. <laughs> but I've always had that issue with Alex Trebek or Burt Reynolds. You know, mm-hmm. Can you trust him without the mustache? But we digress here. So uh, for some reason or the other, Sean Young, you know, I don't know if, what happened with her. But, but Harrison Ford and Sean Young would... Uh, yeah, two years later, a year later, do Blade Runner mm-hmm. together. So uh, they're they're at a loss of who they want to cast. They say, "Hey, why well, about Harrison point, Ford?" It's like they had their heart set on Tom Selleck, and now they're they're coming up on production. Right? They have, yeah, they have a date. They got like two like two weeks yeah. to go or something. And they're like, so they go back to Harrison Ford, and Harrison Ford said at the time he had just finished shooting uh, Empire Strikes Back. He took two months off because he bought a house. He was doing as he does. He's a carpenter. He was building stuff in the house. He had known about this project. He didn't show any interest in it because he thought that they had already secured somebody. Lucas rang him up and said, hey, we have an issue. Would you consider it? He read the script. He liked it. Lucas facilitated a meeting with Spielberg. They had never met before, so Harrison went and met Spielberg. Um, Spielberg has this weird thing where he likes to meet his actors and cook. Yeah. So he to, to, to kind of disarm them, so they'll make bread or something, or they'll cook something, and so then that's how they're able to get to. That. So he does all his auditions like in a kitchen, where he runs video and stuff. So um, you know they they got on really well, and I think then Harrison immediately signed on, and uh, they talk about other people. We we said Karen Allen is 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 um, cast as Marion Ravenwood, and Karen Allen's previous appearance on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, Black Christmas that. Uh, no, no, she's not in that movie. I thought she's who's in Black Christmas. Margot Kidder. Ah, Margot Kidder's in that. Um, she, uh, Carrie Allen's in Cruising. Cruising. Okay, Cruising. <laughs> Sorry, I'm. Th- <laughs> ding, I get, ding, 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 I get black, uh, Margot Kidder. Oh, yes, um, of the Superman lore. Um, they offer um, Toad, Todd Toad, um, to Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski turns it down and says, <laughs> "Quote at the time, as much as I do like." Uh, as much as I'd like to do a movie with Spielberg, the script was moronically shitty, as so many other flicks of this elk. That was un- that's close quote Kinski at the time, and he was just about to appear in the movie Venom, 
1981. So yeah, it's, it's but how cool would it have to have the Nazi heavy be Klaus Kinski? Yeah, he would have yeah. added an element of uh, fucking wow. Yeah, I love you know? Kinski, but it's crazy because he made some shitty movies. I know, and he was very proud of those <laughs> shitty movies at the time. But they offer it to um, this gentleman Ronald Lacey, who was an actor all his life, uh, like a, uh, a British actor, right? a British character actor who had been acting and he kind of got frustrated with his career because it really didn't go anywhere aside from just being character roles. He gave up acting and had become a, uh, like an agent, an agent. And it was only like four or five months into being an agent when, uh, Spielberg was suggested to see him and Spielberg said he loved him because he immediately thought of Peter Lorre. And I never thought about that until you watch this. Yes, he is fucking playing Peter Lorre in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's fucking amazing, you know? And so you have like the Sidney Greenstreet, you have the Elijah Cook Jr., you have the buffoon, John, John Ray Davies, kind of the character. I love how he's got like 10 kids. That's very much like a Charlie Chan, <laughs> number one son, number two son. Yeah. So you have all these tropes that we've talked about before they're bringing in. So they hire uh, Ronald Lacey to play... Um, the, the, the Nazi character, you have uh, Paul Freeman, we said that, you know, he wanted, they wanted somebody who can rival Harrison Ford and be convincing enough. So they run out the cast. You have... Uh, There's uh, another What If game. Of which one? John Reese davis Oh, yes. They wanted Danny DeVito, right? Spielberg really wanted Danny DeVito. And Danny DeVito and really Dan- wanted Danny DeVito. And Danny DeVito really wanted to do it. But again... Taxi. Taxi. The television got in the way. Yeah, they wouldn't... Taxi wouldn't... He couldn't get out of Taxi or something or so that the end... Uh, it's always the TV. Like McQueen had this This when he was going to do um, The Great Escape. Um, he was doing Wanted Dead or Alive, the Bounty Hunter show, and they wouldn't let him out of it. So he just crashed a car into a tree and broke his leg. <laughs> And that shut production down, and he secretly went and did escape. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes escape. it works out. I mean, it's tough because the TV schedule is such that it's pretty demanding. Yeah, I mean, it's to be. It's you know, as you, back then you're shooting twenty some episodes a, a season. It's not like today where you shoot like six to ten episodes. Yeah, they're doing. They were doing like you know really heavy duty stuff there. Um, so I think that really. Uh, Rounds out the cast from what I can think of. Elliot, who plays Marcus. Yeah, great, great uh, British character actor at the time. Which, you know, I I love uh, Last Crusade. Yeah. But I do find it odd watching this one and then seeing, like, what, like a comic Oh, they they turn him into? They turn him into, like, a... He he becomes, by Last Crusade, kind of like a... He becomes a buffoon by Last Crusade. Yeah, they kind of turn him into a... uh, That kind of... And we mentioned briefly Alfred Molina. Yeah, who, who at the beginning at the time. And then he has a very funny it was story. his first film role. Yeah, he had been doing a lot of like theater work, and he talks about how like the scene with the spiders, they put all these tarantulas on his back. And then Spielberg's like, you know, he had this, there's like this spider wrangler, and they put all these tarantulas on his back, and Spielberg's like, aren't they going to move? They look fake. Yeah, and then the, 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 the wrangler's like, well, they're only male spiders. They'll start moving when you introduce a female. And then Spielberg's like, introduce a female. So they, he says that they take the female, and they put it like on the front of his shoulder, and all the males are on the back, and they just start going fucking crazy, <laughs> killing each other. And Spielberg's like, roll, roll, roll. And then that's the scene where he's like, hey, hey, he's sitting yeah. there. So a um, uh, certain sleepover movie for you and I involving spiders. Uh, arachnophobia? Kingdom of the Spider? Kingdom with, uh, with William, William Shatner. Shatner. Yeah, the Shatner. But funny you brought up arachnophobia <laughs> because <laughs> dun, dun, dun. One, of the produ- the, one of the producers of this movie, Frank Marshall. Yes. Uh, who, who has a cameo twice in the movie. His cameo twice in the movie and was given the job of finding a mountain that looked like the Paramount logo. In Hawaii. In Hawaii because Spielberg wanted to have that brilliant fade from the Paramount logo to uh, on location. Mountain, so he gave Frank Marshall that job. Uh, but Frank Marshall 
uh, was a producer on the Last Picture Show, Paper Moon. So he worked with Peter Bogdanovich. Yep. Uh, but also seemed to produce a lot for Spielberg in the 80s. And I don't know what happened that they must have had a fallen out or something because he did Raiders of the Lost Ark. He did Poltergeist with Spielberg. He did Back to the Future with Spielberg as producing partners. Um, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which he did. Uh, he also did the other uh, Indiana Jones movies, but other Sleepover Fair. He got Money Pit, which yep. got brought up recently. Because, yeah, I thought it was a remake, but I was thinking of Brewster's Millions. Uh Battery's not included. Yep. Uh, land, great. land before time. Yep. Cape Fear. Yeah, great. Indian in the cupboard. Yep. Congo Sixth Sense. Yep. Uh, but the last movie he did with Spielberg was Hook. But the reason why arachnophobia is because I think he's only directed one movie, and that's arachnophobia. And it was arachnophobia. That's interesting. He in this movie he plays the uh, the pilot at the beginning that's fishing right on the pontoon boat to get Indy out, and then later on I think he's. He's the Nazi pilot yeah. on the wing. On the, on the yeah, they get the knocked out wing. by the uh, by the Marion knocks him out with the, the wedges on the, yeah, the, the wheel wedges or whatever they're called. Yeah, um, they also offered the Nazi role to Roman Polanski at the time, but he said no. And um, they also uh, were considering Deborah Winger and Amy Irving for Marion, but they settled on um, what's your face? Wasn't Spielberg married to Amy Irving? Oh, he might or have been. Did he marry her? You know, Harrison oh, Ford yeah. found his wife on this role in this movie, because Harrison Ford's uh, wife was she was the screenwriter, maybe. Well, I, think. I know she wrote E.T. Well, that's so that was what they were do- at the time. Spiel when they weren't weren't doing it when they weren't shooting, they were both Spielberg and her were talking out, and they came up with E.T. So he came up th- with E.T. on set shooting this movie, and he was dictating his idea, and she was taking notes, and then that turned into E.T. And then he she met Harrison on this movie. So um, he, they cast Harrison Ford as Indy. We've gone through a lot of Indy before, about what's... Um, Harrison Ford is a very physical guy. He's, funny enough, our age when he shoots this movie, he's 38 around that time, you know. He says he um, he had to condition his body because he's not really jacked in this movie. He's just no, sinewy. but he's toned. He's fit. Yeah, he's toned and he looks pretty good. Uh, I mean, he looks great. You know, women swoom, swoom over him. Yeah. Um, he also had to learn how to whip. He had to use a... It was like, like a 15 it, or 20 whip, whip it good. good. <laughs> He had to use like a 20 or 15 foot whip. He said he, he learned how to do that himself, got it pretty good. And I think that's kind of maybe where they get the actual sounds for the whip is is, is uh, Harrison using the whip, but he got pretty proficient. Harrison teaching like one of the other sound guys how to do it too. Yeah. And they just recorded them doing just doing whip sounds. Whip sounds all freaking day. And uh, let's see, Harrison in the movie... Uh, you know, his outfit, he's got the famous Herbert Johnson shop. There's a shop in uh, Savin Row, London, and that's where the um, his Stutson hat comes from. Which is the Australian model. Yes, it's the... It's an interesting hat because I don't know if you recall in our youths going to MGM Studios to... I have a story of this. The Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones Stunt Spectacular. Spectacular. Yes, and they sold the hats in the next... And they sold freaking... the hats in the gift shop. Yeah. And here's the thing. That hat... Does not look good on anybody but Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's a very odd-shaped hat. It's got a very tall... Well, the problem is a that they... It's tall hat. They custom the hat to Harrison Ford, which they do it a lot, like in a Western a lot of times. So mm-hmm. if you're picking it off the rack, you're right. But what they did with the with this hat specifically was they, incre- they increased the brim so that... They tickled the brim a little bit. They tickled bit. the brim a little bit. <laughs> so I'm, uh, that's like six hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> bringing that around. But I want to make sure we yeah. don't forget it. And what did I say? Wet in the forceps? And you're like, oh, that's all too gross. 
uh, they increase the brim on it for the reasoning is that that it'll easily disguise the face so that it's per- seamless to have a double a stunt double be able to mm-hmm. do the stunts. And like you said, it's very tall. It's got a very tall like body to it. Yeah. I don't know what you call that part of the hat, but it's got a very uh, abnormally tall. It's an abnormally tall hat. Now the brilliance of it is that and. A brilliance that does not go unseen uh, by Spielberg because he uses it multiple times is it creates a very awesome and distinct silhouette. Yes, and that's and that's used, you know, for the most part. It's used like five times in this movie. Yeah, and I it's, mean, it's, it's like brilliant. When he, when he walks into for the Marian, barn. And it's when he's on the, 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 the long the horizon, shot, the horizon. is digging. Awesome, and they're singing songs. And so it's very... And that was an idea behind having the hat. We wanted to get a hat... The 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 customer Landis, Dion and I when we yeah, worked when on the we movie. Were doing, we wanted to get the hat, you know, um, take away all the Heston aspects from Secret of the Incas, but they're saying they Which wanted his hat to f- is very different. Yeah, I, I mean, but it's a Stetson, yeah. but the, but they were looking for a hat that that was unique enough, but then looked like everybody else's hats. Yeah, it had to look like every hat. But it had to be unique, unique enough. And then the, also the big thing was they wanted it to be have a great silhouette, which I think they completely. Um, oh, it's iconic. Yeah, you know they they completely. Uh, uh, did here they, they they fulfilled that it's called the poet model is also the hat if you want to so there's an Indiana Jones site we can link here too that you can find all because a lot of this stuff is still this is what pisses me off these companies they have versions of they why don't they just keep if they know people are going to buy this just keep that hat they call it now the indie hat but originally it was called the poet hat but why don't you you know, you know people are going to want to buy it so people have to buy like other versions of the hat and then modify it to look like the original hat you know um, you talked about before the, the, the gun, his is the Smith and, Smith and Wesson, 1917-45 caliber. The other thing that's big here, aside from his leather jacket and his khakis, are his boots. The boots are legendary. They're, um, a lot of people who find a good pair of boots, I found this out uh, coincidentally a couple of years ago from a friend of mine who was just looking to research a good mm-hmm. boot. But there are these boots called um, Allen Shoe Company of Middleborough, Massachusetts. They make a boot, their work boot's called the 405 boot. And now they're known as the indie boot. But at the time, supposedly, Harrison Ford had bought a pair of these boots while he was being a carpenter. And that became the boot that he wore in all these movies. So now people, it's a very famous work boot. It's, I think th- this boot costs about $500 or so. And there's other uh, you know, uh, varying degrees of, of, of how much they are. They stopped making, again, this the color. So they have like a more of a reddish kind of boot. So people are buying them and then doing their own thing. Like, you know, they're, they're maybe t- shoe polishing them to do a little darker, yeah. you know. But that's the name of the boot. It's the it's called the Indie Model now, but it's the 405 Allen Shoe Company work boot. Um, and that's kind of his look. And it's, it's very iconic with the bull whip and with the leather jacket. You know, I'm sure there's the, you can also find what the, the name of the leather jacket is, too, and all that kind of a thing. And that becomes like Batman in his cape and cowl or like Dick Tracy with his yellow trench coat. You know, or, you know that becomes his look. But then now, then you also have the indie look of him with the Stetson hat on, but, you know, where he's got the suit, where he looks like the, you know, he's the traveling indie, where he's yeah. got the jacket. He's know. got three indies. We got the studious university yeah. indie. The learned. We got the traveling indie, which is like commercial traveling indie. Yeah, where he's in like the 30s, kind of a, 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 a almost like a pinstripes kind of a suit. But he's you know he's got the transition of the hat with suit. Yeah, and then we have it's like a, there's a metamorphosis. We got without hat and with a that. suit with hat and a suit, and then full indie. Um, going full indie on full that indie shit. in that motherfucker. 
The, uh, That's another one I'm going to start using. Full indie. <laughs> going full indie. Uh, his bullwhip, which is a kangaroo hide whip, that's that sold in 1999 for $43,000. They probably had a bunch of them. Yeah, there's one, I uh, think, up for, I don't know from which movie, but uh, profstore.com is about to have a big auction at the end of September, and I think there's a there's a whip up for auction. Yeah, they might have a hat, too, or something, or something yeah. else. Side too. His, his, one of his hat and jackets are on display at the Smithsonian, and there was about... Thirty jackets, and they had about thirty hats because you got to remember too that they also have all the stuntmen uh, and yeah, doubles. And if you rip something like that, uh, lastly about the what if game that in 1980, Photoplay magazine published saying that Robert Duvall was having meetings with Steven Spielberg in London to play a role of a Nazi in an upcoming movie, which that never ended up coming to be. So that would be interesting. You have a probably like a bullheaded Robert Duvall, maybe with a monocle <laughs> playing, um, what's his face I character? I Bobby Duvall. Who, who does cool. it? I mean, he shows up in, you know, in, in beginning of, uh, uh, invasion, invasion of the body centers. He's on that swing set as the dress as the priest. Boo Radley. He's got a lot of little parts. Yeah. Why are you there? He's the, he's the taxi cab the driver and, and bullet, <laughs> you know, how do you know it was long distance? He put in a lot of change. Uh, so we get into the movie and, um, uh, the beginning, I, I, I want to give a shout out to Carl Barks, who is the creator of Uncle Scrooge and um, the Scrooge comics, because that all, along with everything we've been talking about so far about the serials. Scrooge McDuck? Yeah. Scrooge McDuck. Fucking Scrooge McDuck. The fucker thinks he's Scrooge McDuck. Launch pod, my fucking quack. That's a, that's a joke that that's no one... Inside. We try not to get too far in inside yeah, jokes, but that's an inside joke for yeah. us. When we used to say, when we go into a bar and somebody was buying drinks, he's fucking Scrooge McDuck over here. <laughs> this guy is my fucking Mr. Moneybags. Who <laughs> yeah. fucking thinks he's Scrooge McDuck? He's got a fucking money bin out in the back of your fucking yard there. He's <laughs> swimming in his money <laughs> bin. He's got swimming in your fucking money bin, you fucking cunt. A great ass fucking... So that's fucking Scottish. Um, anyway. Uh... He had a big series. Feel, you, feel free to use that one, yeah. guys. Go, go, some yeah. guy who's <laughs> flashing his cat. He's flashing his wad. He's fucking Scrooge McDuck. Uh, along with the serials at the time, people forget that the, if you read the original Uncle Scrooge comics, they were very much like Tintin. Scrooge McDuck? Scrooge McDuck. Okay. Uncle Scrooge. He was very much an adventurer. I mean, you know, the original character was based off of... Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, yeah. but they they made him kind of like he's a rich guy, he's an eccentric, he has all the money in the world, so he wants to go buy all these things. So there is an actual uh, Scrooge McDuck story where they go to a to a uh, uh, like an Inca South mm-hmm. American temple to get an idol, and there is a big boulder coming running at him. So to pay homage to the old Carl Barks uh, Scrooge fifties comics like is in the beginning of Ducktales. Probably, it's probably, gonna, probably an homage to that in to, like the title sequence. Yeah, I mean, even like you know, Muppet Babies is an homage to it of him yeah, yeah. of him being Indiana Frog or whatever it is, you know. And then you have the music and all that kind of thing. So that's something maybe people won't know, but there's a heavily influence of the old Scrooge McDuck or Uncle Scrooge comics. Is that they were you know he was an adventure he traveled around with launch, I don't know, maybe it was a launch pad with the with launch Huey pad McQuack yeah with Huey Dewey and Louie and he would go on these adventures for stuff and so that is a direct reference of why they have the big boulder the big fiberglass boulder uh, Harrison Ford did a lot of his own stunts in the movie so he did all the running with the boulder uh, he did a lot of the, he they they dragged him for a minute behind the truck he bruised that his truck ribs. sequence is fucking awesome well when I growing up that was. That was my favorite scene in the movie. I mean, you know, that was the whole thing. That was done second unit by a great uh, second unit director in the movie, Michael Moore. No relation to the Michael Moore people know. A in, British film, uh, second unit guy, right? I think he's American. Oh, yeah. 
But I know they used a lot of bird because they yeah, shot they, a yeah, lot. Yeah, they shot it all in England or Tunisia because Tunisia is so close to England. But he did. That was the first time Spielberg said he had used. Second he, unit. Yeah, second unit to that. And it ended up turning out great. We should mention Glenn Randall in the movie, who's the stunt coordinator, who did all the you know the, the, the big stunts in it, uh, who choreographed all the big stunts. Because this is a very stunt-heavy movie. Uh, and well, the that's other, the thing. They wanted to, like, if you again, to refer to that transcript. Yes. Yeah. Part where Lucas is like, I want to, like, we don't have a lot of money, so I don't want to waste it on, like, 500 extras. Yeah. Like, let's put that money into the stunts. Like, let's make this shit exciting. Yeah, so they want to have these big these big uh, set so, pieces. Like, right from the start, they were like, we're going to throw the majority of the budget. It's going to be like, let's get guys falling off horses and being drunk behind the chairs. Yeah, or jumping from, I mean, they cite from the Republic serials that they like that there's, like, you know, where the guy's on a horse and he jumps to a truck. Yeah. You know, there's a stuntman named uh, Terry Leonard who... Do, does the truck sequence as Indy? He he had done a a stunt a couple of years before in a Tarzan movie that didn't work out right. But they were trying to homage a very famous, I think he's Japanese or he's Asian stunt actor from the '30s who does in Stagecoach John Ford Stagecoach. He does a scene where he goes under the stagecoach. So they were trying to homage that. And this guy Terry Leonard had just done tried to do it in the Tarzan movie didn't work out as well. He came on and do stunts, and he said to Spielberg, if there's any way you can incorporate me going underneath a truck, and they're like, well, funny you said that, Terry. <laughs> we have a truck, and we'd love for you to go underneath yeah. it. So they did this scene where they had, um, uh, what's his face, uh, Glenn uh, Randall and um, Terry Leonard. They did the scene where, you know, they, they went under the truck and all. And that whole sequence with the truck is so exciting. And That's Harrison Ford is doing so much of his own stunts yeah, there. Yeah. It looks like Ric Flair's driving, you know, <laughs> you know that guy, the they actor. Got, you know, they the, got the nature boy. Yeah, they got the nature boy. Woo! <laughs> he's driving. And uh, I just love, like, the shot of where he's on at the front of the truck. Yeah. And, and he's kind of, like, holding on and his fennies. His feet are feet, on the on feet, the gravel, and, he's, and, he, and his ground. legs are sprawled between. So it's so exciting. We didn't get into the, the the how we know these movies, but I one of my earliest movie memories of either cinema or movies in general is I remember seeing on TV a commercial for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and like after they flash up Raiders, like when before they fade away to the next commercial. That's the joke where he's on the hood of the truck and he's grabbing the medallion mm-hmm. and the hood ornament, and it's. It, bends off you know and that and like it, it's so iconic that whole scene and he's grabbing the grill and the the things are coming out from the grill you know yeah, and then yeah. he's able to do you know and uh you know then them i the idea going back to his character using the whip he can whip around things he can swing on like it's a vine and it's just so forward it's a, it's thinking. a versatile weapon <laughs> yeah uh pat roach who's another stuntman in the movie he appears twice he's the big guy around that he fights around the the wing mm-hmm. he also shows up He's the guy, the big guy that he fights in Nepal in the bar. That when him and India are grappling, and then what's his face? I shoot them both. That's the same guy. Oh, okay. Spielberg loves him so much, he brings him back. He's in Temple of Doom. He's the guy, the big guy that Harrison fights in the tomb when he's fighting the kids, you know, like near the end by the mines. He's that guy that I think the guy gets on the conveyor belt and then he gets, you know, the, the member he gets forced into the machine and crushed. Yeah, yeah. That's that guy. And then he has, he had a part in Last Crusade. He was going to be with the guy, no ticket. When they both get onto the uh, the Zeppelin, but mm-hmm. they cut the scene down. Harrison Ford beats him up or something, but they cut the scene out. But that's him walking on with the guy. It says no ticket. But that guy, uh, Matt Roach, he's a big stunt guy. I mean, you have these amazing stunt guys. I mean, all this, you know, the, like we st- like uh, 
you know, the Norman Reynolds, the production designer who did all the, the production design work of the period and the look of the film and, and, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's all these, you know, Spielberg, you know, going back to like the genius of Spielberg real quick. And I think, I don't know if we never did duel, but we talked about duel a lot in the, maybe Mr. Matheson, um, uh, night, night stalker cast, the night stalker cast, uh, the Colchak cast, um, but when you hear about like how Spielberg worked and just the efficiency, it really is brilliant. I mean, the duel thing is a whole other thing, and I would love to duel at, do duel on the show at some point. Yeah, because how he shot duel because it's a TV schedule is fucking insane, and just like the brilliance, there's that's a certain kind of genius. I think is uh, it's the kind of genius that like Robert Rodriguez has, which is like knowing how to get the most out of your dollar yeah, but and, he, you know and it's something that we touched on a little earlier that was what certainly lucas but spielberg as well wanted to get back to with this yeah movie. yeah you know how so they were able to knowing, shoot the movie so quickly duel let's try to do that here yeah which I was mean, lucas insane. is just like to spielberg he's like we got to shoot this thing like they shot those cereals, cereals we don't have then. any money so he had uh reynolds quick setups and stuff like he that. had reynolds the uh the production designer the norman reynolds the production designer basically make small models of all all the set pieces, like all the 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 marketplace and the, the, the dig scene, the dig in scenes, Cairo, and then you can see footage and shots of like Spielberg rolling around on the ground, like with a thirty-five millimeter lens, like looking at the models, you know, basically plotting out how he's going to shoot the movie. You're getting shot, yeah, getting, basically so shots. that you know, a way of like storyboarding or like animatics, like figuring it all out on these tiny little models so that when they got to set, they could be efficient and just blow through it. It's brilliant stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, the DP on this, Douglas Slocum, is awesome. You know, he's such a good... And I think he shot a... This might have been the first movie he used with Spielberg, but I think he went on to do other... He might have did all three indies. Uh, I think he The DP have, on this. Yeah. Uh, he kept a lot of the same people, like Michael Kahn, the editor. He, he edited all three indies, or all four now. And um, maybe Slocum. I don't know. He might have shot the last one. But, you know, he, he, and then, you know, with the Michael Moore, the second unit, uh, and the, the effects guys, I mean, and just the idea of, like, the matte paintings in this movie, and if you watch the behind the scenes of, like, ILM at the time, this is circa 1980, you have such a great idea of the practical uh, in-house effects that they're doing, either for the end with the, with the Nazis taking the Ark apart and what happens to the three guys with one head, the one guy melts, the other head explodes, the other head's it kind of, um, uh, what do you call that? Just, you know, sucks in, yeah. you know. Uh, it's a, And then with the lights, it's just such a great uh, example of how, how to just, them to figure out as much as they can to save money how to do practical effects, effects that they know later on that they could touch up with the blossoming ILM putting in, you know, uh, not digital or computer effects, but more just like, um, what do you call that? Optical printing and doing that kind of a yeah, thing yeah, and yeah. adding that all levels of that later, or certainly the matte paintings of like, uh, you know, when they're digging up the, the, the well of souls where the ark's going to be. And then, you know, God being well, pissed I love off the, the sky. Look, uh, yeah. But I love the look of like the spirits and stuff. That's another thing. It's, it's very eighties so, poltergeist poltergeist, uh, uh, the librarian from Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. It's, it's a specter, you know, <laughs> it like, it's so puts it in that, like, you know, first the, half of the eighties. And we talked it's about so that. In, yeah. And Ghostbusters were like, like fluidity to it. That's so gorgeous. Where it's like, you know, the, the, they're giving light off, you know? So like when you see people reacting, the, the, the reversals, 
there's a reflection of light on the mm-hmm. actor's face from the specter. They did in this, they said they took puppets and they put them in the water and they kind of had it like a mon- like a like a like a almost like a um uh, a stick and they were able to and then shoot it at a certain rate and that's how they were able to get that fluidity of it looked like it's floating in such a way yeah, yeah. you know because they just put them in water and they had like the uh, some models you know to have the, the beautiful faces and it's certainly a, a t- it time stamps the those spirits because you don't see that a lot but you see that within their realm of 80s but within their movies of the yeah, poltergeist yeah. is is uh you know toby hooper but the spielberg connection you yeah, have yeah. uh maybe even ghost story at the time uh but certainly ghostbusters yeah and, which uh, we, t- like we said richard england or edland edland or whatever. Ro- yeah richard edland did ghostbusters specifically so he probably got he some worked ideas on this movie so maybe he had that you know where they they had an idea for um of you know where what to do with you know to, to, to get that kind of a thing so uh you know, and then they had like the at the end the exploding head was a practical head, but they got an R rating at the time, and at the time there was no PG thirteen, so they had to try to get a PG rating. So they had to then just overlay optically uh, heavy use of flames to tone down the image of the head yeah. exploding. So was it Belloc? Yeah. Uh, so you it wouldn't be that startling of his head blowing up and all that kind of thing. I mean, there was so much just stuff uh, uh, going on here, like some of the initial ideas of the Nazi uh, toad where they they were thinking early on maybe he'd have a machine gun arm, you know, and like have it be robotic <laughs> very much like yeah. Peter Lorre from Mad Love having the robotic kind of a look or something, mm-hmm. you know. And he kind of has that Mad Love kind of look with the glasses and the black yeah, hat and yeah. the black on black. And I'm sure people know about the... Um, this story already, but uh, Spielberg had came up with the idea of the with the uh, coat hanger, and that he thought that was such a good joke. He used it in 1941. And it was, I think, a deleted scene with Christopher Lee going to torture Slim Pickens in the U-boat, and then no one laughed at the joke with Christopher Lee doing it and putting his. So he goes, "I'm going to throw that in every movie until it works." So he puts it in this next movie, which is Raiders, and it works. And they got that laugh of you know, of, yeah, with, yeah. The, um, with the thing. So. Uh, you know, there's there's just so much that Ford doing his own stunts. He ends up tearing his knee ligaments because uh, at one point going around that flying wing, uh, his foot got stuck under the wheel and uh, he got bruised ribs and being dragged on the car on the thing. And then everybody uh, got like um, dysentery while they were shooting in Tunisia, except mm-hmm. Spielberg because Spielberg was eating basically SpaghettiOs. He was eating canned food shipped right from England. Everybody else was eating the indigenous food. So everybody got the screaming shits to the point where, uh, what's his face? Uh, John da- Reese Davis. Yeah, there's a deleted scene where uh, he's, he is being confronted by a Nazi and Spielberg says, is there a way you can bend down for the shot? So he tries to do it in a rehearsal and he shits himself in front of like 80 people. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, he wants to change the eye line for the German guy. Yeah. Not even for his shot, just for the reaction. And, and he, uh, shit himself. he shit himself. And he says, at that point, I didn't care. And that's another reason why you have that. Cl- it's become uh, movie history now where the scene with, uh, in the marketplace where that guy comes out with the big sword there was going to be this big set piece where the guy was going to flip the sword around and Indy was going to take his whip out and there was going to be him whipping and he was going to at some point whip the sword away and they choreographed this huge stunt and then they tried it a couple times but Harrison Ford kept having to leave set to go take a shit because he had diarrhea because they had dysentery at the time. So he just, he couldn't get it and he's like, how about we just shoot the guy? And they're like, okay, let's try that. So then that's how they, the iconic, he just pulls his revolver out and shoots the guy and it's just, you know, that's so classic. I do, I mean, again, there's so much inside stuff but I do want to talk a little bit uh and this that's a good 
quick little segue. I just want to branch off in that I I, I don't know if it's been my brother or me. Uh, you were saying like you re, your earliest memory of this. I, this I just this movie I don't remember a time without this movie. Yeah, <laughs> like I just it's one of those movies that I always knew. But one thing I had was fucking Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark toys. I didn't have any toys. I knew. Because I could never find them. They were those, like those smaller... They were a little smaller than yeah. G.I. Joe's. And I remember yeah. finding them much later in life. There was like a... I think it was called like Odd Job or Odd Lot, one of these like discount stores. Yeah, yeah. And in like high school going in one and finding like Raiders of the Lost Ark toys. <laughs> you know? Like, and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. It's like 15 years <laughs> later. And it was like and it was like the guy with the with the sword. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I was like, "Holy shit!" So you know, I you know, I just had this. It was like while we were watching it, I was just having all these flashbacks of like the things I had. I had, I had the guy, the the guy with the swords. That yeah, we were just yeah, talking yeah. about. I had him. I had Indy. Uh, I had uh, Belloc in the outfit at the end that he's doing the ceremony in. Okay. Uh, Which is evidently the real outfit that they they researched that if you were to perform this ceremony, that's what you'd wear in front of the ark. I had uh, the. Uh, What's the the tote? Donald, yeah, the Ronald Lacey character, the the German guy. Now he was cool because he had that's so freaky. He had like on you know, this little tiny plastic hand. There was the medallion engraved. Isn't it so? And he had like a black suit, and he had an overcoat. You could like that take... you put all over him. Yeah, like he wears that with his like the SS. It was like yeah. a little rubber overcoat, that's and I used so... to put that guy that thing Nazi. on the Joes and stuff. And I also had the. Uh, the playset of the, like when they go down in the hole with the snakes. They had a playset. Yeah, there was, so it was like this plastic thing with, you know, floor that had you know snakes kind of uh, etched into it, like uh, yeah. But then it Part also of the plastic. But then it also came with like a bunch of like loose, like rubber snakes that you could put on it, and then it had, um, like a back wall. Because it had like a piece that would push out, which is when they, you know, they to drop the the yeah. yeah but it was also like statues. just a couple of of things. But uh, it had an arc. It had the stone thing that goes over the arc. We gotta go to eBay and see how what these things are. Did they have a truck? Did they sell it? It had uh, it had the mummy that falls on uh, what's onto her, face? her. Yeah. It had uh, and it had like these arches that went over the where the ark was. I still have all that stuff somewhere. But I feel like the, didn't they have a truck that you can like? You I'm know, sure there must you know, have been a truck. I mean, they too. must have. I never remember it being those. I remember the figures to a certain extent, but I don't remember the play sets or the elaborate. So they must have really like because of the success of the Star Wars, they must have realized we can really probably sell the hell out of this merchandising. Yeah. I wish I like. I, there's pictures of me with the set somewhere at my dad's. You gotta house. find that shit. We'll but post we, it. <laughs> but like, I don't really talk to my dad very often. So, be, hey, dad, can you find the picture of me <laughs> with the thing <laughs> playing with the Raiders of the Lost Ark set? Sure, uh, I have that on the wall. Uh, is it's so weird to think of how iconic all this stuff is, and it's just kind of like now we're kind of numb to it. We're like. You know, the lines, you know, sap's very dangerous. You go first, or bad dates, or, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it belongs in a museum. That's not from this movie. But, like, or, you know, him holding his hand up and having the, the, the you yeah. know, well, it's, it's all so startling. As we were watching it, it was like, you were oh, yeah, I had that. Yeah. Well, I had that toy, too, because I was like, as we were, I was like, I don't think I had a Belloc character. But then when we got to the end scene, 
and he's in the thing. I was like, well, yeah, I did. I had Belloc, but he was wearing, he was wearing that freaking thing. <laughs> and I also had, I remember very, uh, I was very into listening, reading the books with the tapes oh, and yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we talked a little bit about that when we did Black Hole. Yeah. Uh, I was so into that. There was a very... We talked about... I had a Disney one. And we talked about that in the Black Hole. Yeah. I had a Batman... Lonesome Ghosts. I had a, a Batman one, which was like the curse of the fucking something Phoenix uh, that I fucking loved. And I had ones that were... You had a Star Wars one that was a full LP. But then I had a handful of these really tiny 45s. Yeah. I had Tron. Wow. And I had Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I don't even remember, like, how much could you put on? I mean, that's like six minutes. Yeah, each side. <laughs> it's three minutes a side. like three and a half minutes a side for a 45. <laughs> and, but I do remember the cover was the map room. Oh, wow. He's coming it down. It was Jones, but he's in, like, the turban or whatever in the map room. So it wasn't, like, this big iconic, like... Indiana Jones with the fedora. It was like the map room was the cover of that thing. They have um, other what ifs for Indy. We had Sam Neill considered, Bill Murray, Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Peter Coyote, who actually we, there's a scene where Peter Coyote, I think, is doing in a screen test. Jack Nicholson, we said Tom Selleck. Uh, but I guess, you know, uh, Murray dropped out because thankfully he had conflicts with Saturday Night Live. Steve Martin was doing Pennies in Heaven at the time. I mean, weird. I don't know how you'd... I guess you could play that straight. It would be a different... You know, you you, you don't think about it until you can envision it, but yeah. it would be odd. Uh, Sam Neill, you know, that he goes on and they use him in Jurassic Park. You know, we love Sam Neill. Uh, quickly, we're talking about the the the... the uh, the Temple of the, the Lost Souls, that room, they built that on the same soundstage they completed The Shining on. You know, The Shining was, the hotel was completely built on a soundstage. So they must have gutted that. And that's where they put the <clears throat> the entire set for the Well of Lost Souls, where the on the top is when they break in and they go mm-hmm. down. And you probably know about this. There was this huge issue at the time with the snakes because they were treating the snakes, I guess, pretty bad. And Vivian Kubrick, Stanley's daughter, came on to visit the set. And she's like, yo, you're fucking stepping on these snakes. You're killing them. And they're like, well, we're doing fine. So she reported them to the to the ASPACA, whatever the royal equivalent is over there in England. And they had to stop production down for a day to get people in there and be like, yeah, you guys are fucking killing the snakes. You should really, <laughs> you know. And uh, yeah. that was kind of dealt with, too. Uh, the Uncle Scrooge comic we were talking about uh, is the prize of uh, um, Pizarro, Pizarro from uh, 1959. That's the one where it has flying darts, gushing water, decapitated blade, huge boulder in it. That's the issue um, that uh, Carl Banks did that they loved. Uh, what else? Uh, I feel like there's so much that we didn't talk about but you know what we, we are delirious it is what nine in the morning now uh, i think the sun had passed we have we, we got missed, yeah, we missed the bathroom we, we've been talking about it so much <laughs> that it passed I, god uh, damn it i knew we were getting <clears throat> something we missed uh, our opportunity i mean they had a novelization the, the, the novelization came out by um scottish arthur Camben armstrong under a pseudonym campbell black and that was released in 81 and um they did a making of the film as well. They had, like you said, that the Kenner had a whole bunch of toys. They did a video game in the Atari video game. Temple of Doom novelization that I think I bought at Glen in Glendale. Oh, California. We California went on, our thing. on our trip. To- yeah, that is one of. Do you know what's the name of the artist who does the posters? 
Struzan? Yeah, because he does, I think he did all them because for me, it's like that Temple of Doom poster is one of the most iconic posters I've ever seen of him like standing with the shirt off with the machete over the over the edge looking down at you. Yeah. You know, that's like, you know, some of these Indiana Jones posters. And then when... I think Struzan did them, but when, I could be wrong. When Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, I had, um, when it came out on video, I, I, I got from Pathmark the standee. So my parents' basement for a couple of years, I had like, you know, him on horseback shooting the gun at you and behind it a plane. And, you know, it's as the standee. And I was like, this is great, but you can't do anything with the cardboard <laughs> standee. You know, that, that has like a, a box that you can put the VHSs in. I had that thing. Um, I'm thinking like all little, the Disney, it's, you know, you, you brought up the MGM Studios Disney thing. I have a story where quickly we went and saw that. I, I videotaped the entire thing. And then I went and talked to the stuntmen later on, like afterward, because they were like sending autographs. I'm like, you know, why didn't that guy get killed? He got shot. Why didn't he get killed by the blades? And the guy, bless his heart, made like, I think a lie up. Like, well, we had a trap door, but it wasn't working this day. So, you know, we just had him get shot. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then um, I thought that was great. That MGM Studios, Indiana Jones stunt spectacular of seeing how everything's done. And like I said, I still have it on tape. And they stop down and they tell you how they do these scenes and stuff. And then we went next door. My dad bought the hat and he had the hat for the rest. It was like 60 bucks, which was expensive yeah, at the time. Yeah. And he bought the hat and he wore it for the rest of the trip. And then fucking, we put it in a closet. And there was a kid I used to hang out with when I was little, uh, Jeremy, and I'll leave his last name uh, for the sake of amenity. But he was a huge Indiana Jones fan, so I let him borrow the hat because he used to play Indiana Jones, and he never gave it back. And then when years later, when in like high school, I saw him, I was like, "Where's the hat?" He's like, oh, "I don't know where it is." I'm like, "Well, you should fucking buy me a new hat, man, because you stole my fucking dad's Indiana Jones hat." Yeah, but expensive. I digress. Yeah, it was expensive, and it was my dad's hat. Um, uh, speaking of VHS, I think we do need to give a little shout out to Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. Yes. Uh, which is a 1989 American fan film. Oh yes, which is we brought up. We brought that up a couple times on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, there was one episode where we talked about fan films. Yeah, I remember. Uh, but it was, it's basically these kids over like eight, seven or eight years from starting when they were twelve uh, in 1982. So they started the movie when you couldn't even get the movie on VHS. Yes. So they had to, like, on a reissue, went into a movie theater and recorded the audio so that they could get the lines. Holy crap. But they basically <clears throat> did a shot-for-shot remake. Over every, the summers, right? Every summer for, like, seven or eight years. And so you see, like, them age, obviously, throughout the movie. And the only scene they didn't do was the uh, flying wing Nazi fight. Yeah. Where the guy gets, you know, chopped up with the... And I think the at powers. some point they started a Kickstarter account to raise money... I don't know if they ever ended up pulling it off to raise money to shoot that scene now as adults. Oh, that'd be great. So that they could add it. I feel like there's a documentary on that. I had to do some research. They might have been making a documentary. Last time we talked about fan films, we might have been talking about how (laughs) they were trying to make a documentary about that movie but yeah. it's a it's a whole it's it's amazing that it's is. smile inducing yeah how, how cool they did all that and, and and what they were able to i mean they set themselves on fire in one of the kids basements <laughs> to do like the nepal <laughs> the bar the scene, bar scene yeah. i mean that's pretty impressive you know um, what they're doing but just goes to show you like how inspirational and marvelous and magical this movie is that it would inspire these kids to spend their summers for eight years, seven or eight years, trying to complete this dream project of, of doing a shot for shot remake of this movie. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, a couple quick things. They talk about the 
exterior of Indy's house is um, is found footage they took from the big budget Hindenburg disaster movie from a couple years before. And I think there's another shot that they also took from Lost Horizons, a movie of the, around the same time that they just uh, they didn't have time or didn't couldn't find. The, so they were able to match the you know the film stocks and use that. Um, in the novelization, they say they explain why Indy knows at the end of the movie to close his eyes because he reads, I guess, on the top of the 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 piece that they had it says don't look at it says something in the effect in, in the hieroglyphs yeah, not yeah. to look into the so that's why he he knows the idea um of to close his eyes um the whole scene with the um the submarine uh they went to france and at the time they were just starting to film das boot so they were trying to figure out where they can find a period U-boat. And they're like, oh, they built one for Das Boot. So they grabbed it to borrow. The, the company that made it rented it out to them to shoot. And Das Boot went to go film. And it wasn't there because they were renting it out to, <laughs> to Indiana Jones. And uh, we didn't really have time to go over the deleted, altered, or extended scenes in this. Um, if you go look at the special features, there's a bunch of them. But one of the biggest things for me when I was little is like, how the hell did he get from the sub to the sub base? Because they don't really explain yeah, yeah. it well. And there are deleted scenes where, or a shot where it's him, he straps himself with the whip to the, because I guess the sub only goes to periscope depth and keeps the periscope up, which is really ballsy. You think that anything's going to count on them not diving any lower, <laughs> you know? So he just, he, and there's scenes, which I, I don't know why they didn't keep it in the movie, because you could have just had a dissolve of it. But there are scenes they shot of him uh, uh, holding on to the, periscope like sleeping so like it took that long for them to get back to the sub base and he's like you know because they wanted the sub base to kind of be like you know at the end of Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea where the nautilus goes like nemo has that island yeah, yeah and it comes up and they used a real sub base in france they had like this this sub pen that was for real u-boats they did that, that even down to the, the period graffiti that was in there they just used that sub base and just added some swastikas and put some period people in it and that worked perfectly for you know for their yeah. purposes as is indy, <clears throat> indy just holds his breath yeah the entire t- well, people that's what <laughs> i'm surprised they didn't have an idea explaining it away of like why they didn't yeah. You know, why, I mean, why couldn't they just have that? I don't know why they didn't have that, you know, that I just have him, you know, he's holding on or whatever, you know, because you would think a submarine's going to submerge. Uh, but I don't know. They didn't really feel like they needed to explain that. Uh, I don't know. Anything else? I mean, the movie came out June the 12th, 1981. I think it was the first movie to like uh, sell out on DVD or I'm sorry, VHS. It was like the first movie to really you know, sell a shitload of freaking copies. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth noting that this movie is not called Indiana Jones. No, it is not. That was only done for the reissue and to to make it all sinewy with the other releases of, they did a box set with Temple of Doom and Last Crusade and they wanted to make it, it, so they renamed it then Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, but it was originally just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, one of my favorite shows growing up was The Young and Anne Jones Chronicles. We should give a shout out to that and Patrick Lloyd, Patrick, Sean Patrick Flannery, mm-hmm. who I've met. Very nice guy. And he was, he's superb in that show. Yeah. Really good show. Well, and you, I remember <clears> it's like <throat> it originally they started because the pilot is like, like a two, like it's like two parts him as a little kid and then him as a teenager. Yeah. And it seemed like they were going to alternate like little, like young, really young indie. And teenager Indy, and then very soon it just became like the Sean Patrick Flannery show. Yeah. Where he's playing like a teenage indie. And they kind of set it where they have him, I think, born 1900, 
And that explains how old he is. Like, you know, in 1921, he's 21. In 1930, he's 30, you know. So that explains. Yeah. And in the 90s, he's in his 90s. He's got a patch on his eyes, the old indie. And he tells these stories, like, then flashback, and, and that gives you the wraparounds to have the show. But a brilliant show Flannery. goes through World War One. Uh, you know, it a whole was, bunch of stuff. It was a beautiful, beautifully executed show that was shot like a movie. I mean, they shot all over the world for that. And I think it was. It had a couple seasons. I think it is finally. It might be out of print, but it had a DVD release, so you can get it on DVD. Uh, like I said, there were a couple seasons, and I remember very famously, everybody after Last Crusade was like, "When are they going to do another Indiana Jones movie?" And they made the show with Young Indiana Jones, and then. I think to maybe the popularity of the show was kind of uh, flagging, or flagging for whatever the word is, waving, wavering. Was tickling the brim. <clears throat> tip, they, want, they wanted to tickle the brim <laughs> of everybody and come back. So they got Harrison Ford to come. And remember, they did a special yeah, yeah. where Harrison reprises his role. He's getting like a saxophone. And that, that might be the jazz episode. Yeah, where yeah. It's like the 20s prohibition years mm-hmm. or whatever. And he's... And he, it, it's the wraparounds of him, like in a winter cabin with yeah. the saxophone. He's maybe got like a beard in it, you know. Because there also was an old <clears throat> indie in that show. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's an old indie who's like in his 90s with a patch, and yeah, he. Yeah. The, the, a lot of times, the series would start where it's nowadays, and they he start talking to somebody, and then you'd be like, "This reminds me," and like, doodle, and then suddenly <laughs> yeah. you'd be like, you know, it'd be Sean Patrick Flannery in period. Yeah, yeah. And people would know him best, I guess, now as part of that. Um, Boondock Saints. Mm-hmm. He was on with the other kid who's now in Walking Dead, uh, Norman Reedus. Uh, but it's a superb show, really cool. They did a bunch of comics too. I mean, I know they did like probably they did like um, novels in between, like I'm they sure, do with everything. Yeah. But I remember when Last Crusade came out, they had like four or five comics of this, like adaptations. It wasn't just one graphic novel. Yeah. It was like, you know, maybe one through 10. So you, and I got like the shittiest one. I got like when they were in Venice. I was like, sucks. <laughs> You know, I want to get like you know Indy like in his outfit, you know, doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, and also worth noting that because uh, this actually came up recently, and by the time this it'll be a couple of weeks ago, by the time this uh, drops, but recently uh, a friend of the podcast Mike Vanderbilt was talking about this theory that Die Hard with Vengeance actually happens between Die Hard and Die Hard. Oh, people forget this. And that confused people at the time because people didn't really realize. But that was new for people. But uh this movie is technically the second movie. It's technically the second Temple of Doom chronologically in this terms of the arc of the story comes before Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Because this takes place in thirty six. Yes, and I think And Temple of Doom takes place in thirty five. Thirty five. Yeah. So that's so technically and that kinda like probably threw everybody for like, wait, this is that's not the well, you know, because and then the last one I think is maybe thirty. It's like maybe when the Nazis, I forget, it's thirty-eight maybe or something. I forget when the Nazis. The, the, I, mean, I wonder if they did that just to like <clears throat> not have the Nazis be an issue. Probably because they didn't need to have they didn't you know or and, and you know at the time they want maybe set it in the mid thirties in the Orient. You know I don't know. They did all the ideas that they that they left on the on the cutting room floor so to speak. From that transcript, they ended up interjecting a lot of it into that one. Um, and of course, we have a very <clears throat> funny uh, Harrison Ford story. Oh, we do have that a very... F- that uh, we were on 72nd Street in a coffee shop, and we saw Harrison Ford walk by. Yeah, I, I went... I, at the time, I was a smoker, and I used to always adhere at the time. I learned to smoke back then. Like, you know, you'd pack your cigarettes, and then when you'd open your pack up, you'd take one out, and you'd look at how good your pack was, and you'd flip that around. That'd be your lucky cigarette. So we were casting for our senior film at rehearsal space on 72nd Street. We walked over to 2nd, 2nd, 
72nd in Amsterdam, we went into like a Starbucks to get a coffee. And while these guys were inside, I said, I'm going to go outside and have my cigarette. I went outside to have my last cigarette. So Dion's on the corner of 72nd Street. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I light my cigarette. And, and I say, Harrison Ford walks up. Yeah. I say to myself, you know, they always call this the lucky cigarette. And I wonder why people, why, you know, why is this lucky? And I remember I looked down, I threw the cigarette away and I looked up and bang in my, right in my way is Harrison Ford in his aviator glasses. And he says to me, excuse me. And he walks by me and he goes in and then I run in to tell you guys. And by the time we get out, he's gone. But he went into a shoe stop shop to get his, this is the kind of guy he is. He's getting his shoes redone. Yeah. So he comes out of like a leather shop a couple minutes later with like a bag of, mm-hmm. with his shoes in a bag. And so Dion's standing there. He's at the corner waiting for a light. A girl walks up and says, some woman walks up and says something. I don't remember what she said, but she said something like Mr. Ford or Harrison or Harrison, Harrison or something. And Dion says to the girl, you call him Dr. Jones, doll. <laughs> <laughs> and then Harrison Ford smiled. Yeah, and he then and he, he reached, into, reached into his pocket and he flipped Dion a quarter and he said, "Thank you very much." And I said, "You're welcome." Uh, Classic Dion. Yeah, that's that's our Indiana Jones. That's our Harrison Ford story. I did try out for the Crystal Skull movie that they did in New Haven. That New Haven in New Haven. The scenes they shot there, but I didn't get cast. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because if you look at that, you, you know that would have been terrible. Uh, extra work on that thing you know of just a blur of you flying with the car flying by <laughs> um a couple bits and bobs in this uh i noticed there was yellow face did you notice the yellow face i've always <laughs> noticed that there was yellow face yeah. i always thought it was weird even when i was a kid yeah that there's in the scene in nepal when they're in the bar it must be because they couldn't find uh asian stuntmen they had a guy to just put they put him in yellow face we happen to know that there are plenty of asian stuntmen well they did it was a couple years there liao or whatever the, the guy that i got a picture with that oh, monster palooza yeah, yeah. last yeah they could have had him the in there big trouble and, 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 and die hard and all those other movies weapon. uh they could have had him in there but and but they did it with remo williams a couple years later they had uh, what joel silver in yellow, silver, in yellow yeah. face so this guy's in yellow face it's very noticeable and when they're fighting when he's fighting all the the guys the the nepali napoleons on the whatever you call them napoleanos napoleanos uh, and also another big thing about his him is that he never loses his hat, and that's that's a joke, and that goes back to the the idea of it being a character of the '30s, where the guy mm-hmm. never loses the cowboy, never loses his hat on the horse, and that's a joke where you know he's always it's as fantastic as it is. They always have a reason for him to get the hat back. I mean, even when you see him swim over to the sub he gets up he doesn't have anything he doesn't have his leather jacket on him he doesn't have his whip he doesn't have his bag but then a second later you know he's got the hat back you know it's not like telling the pirate to hold these for me and lastly uh since they shot it all in england and and the they even shot the american bits except the last scene uh that down the stairs that was shot in san francisco's uh uh, City Hall. That's the uh, Dirty Harry stairs, where you know at the end of Dirty mm-hmm. Harry's walking up those stairs. That's where they yeah, shot yeah. that bit. But the scenes when they're talking to the OSS special agents, the heavier guy is the American actor who went to England in the seventies and had a big career over there. But he shows up in Star Wars. He's like Red Leader or whatever. Is he Porkins? Yeah, you know that guy. And he mm-hmm. also is Egghart in Batman. Eckhart, oh. think about the future. And yeah, he ends yeah. up getting, he ends up dying a couple of years later, maybe of a heart attack or whatever. But he was an American actor who had the idea. I definitely see him as, <clears throat> as Eckhart. Yeah. But, I didn't. but he's the American actor who went over there and it's like, oh, and he got a job at the time of being the American actor and all those. Yeah. You know, he was well, like he in said that was Agatha so. Christie and all that. You know, he, he did all that. If you want to be, if you're struggling here, I was like, go to Asia, be like yeah. the one American actor. I had a friend of mine who did that in, in the 90s who I work with now. He went right after film school. He hadn't, he got a, 
Chinese girlfriend. He moved to Hong Kong and he got, uh, he was in the film industry for like four or five years over there doing like grip work and all that. But a lot of times they'd say, we need an American in the, in the, so he's in a couple movies where it's like the scene where they're in like the office (laughs) and they need like an American, you know, a Westerner to be there. So he's like, there's a scene at a birthday party he showed me on YouTube where he's like clapping and it's this young, like he looks all tall, young and very uncomfortable. It's like, (laughs) it's all weird. So uh, yeah, Indiana Jones, I mean, it came out and and it, it, uh, you know, there's, there's, it went for what it got nominated for like eight or nine academy awards uh it, it probably got a bunch of those too uh and um it ended up grossing freaking like i don't know uh it was an 18 million dollar billion dollars it grossed 384 million at the box office you know the critical response is great this time nobody poo-pooed it like they did with predator uh it's become a staple now going and this begot what four three sequels a tv show uh, 12 or 15 video games. I We're mean, still talking about doing another one. Yeah, I'd love to see them do another one. I mean, I had, I thought the last one had a lot of problems, but I like the idea of them, you know, uh, I like this character. And I know it's really hard for people to think, are they going to like, that was the big deal with the last one. Are they going to actually pass the buck and put the torch to Shia LaBeouf? And I'm I glad they didn't felt, do I, him. And I, you know, all of Shia LaBeouf's recent problems aside, uh, I always kind of liked Shia LaBeouf, but I always felt. He was wrong. He the, was he was not yeah. cast well as that part. I agree like, with I just you there. didn't buy him as like a fifties greaser. Yeah, you know he's too uh, like contemporary yeah. looking or something. Like a hipster. Or like, it's know. just it's, uh, he worked in the Transformers movies, but just and I like him. I mean, I love that movie that he did uh, where he's trapped in the house. It's like oh yeah, rear window yeah. like a young real window, but the pool like in what's his face from the uh, the gr- Green Miles, the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah, that yeah, movie. Yeah. I like I, I liked him in Fury. I thought he played a great part in the I like Shia LaBeouf. I just yeah. thought he was miscast. You know, and he's got some uh, he's got part. some really weird issues that you know we shouldn't get into now that he's kind of insane, but that's who he is. Well, he's a kid you actor. Know? Yeah. Sometimes so that happens to them, you know, grows into adulthood. Uh but I you know, th- there was an idea of passing the torch along and they're talking about having to go to the what's his face? Um who did uh, American Sniper. What's his name? The actor who played uh, Chris Kyle. You know, oh, Bradley Cooper? Yeah, they're talking about maybe he would come and take this part over and all that. But, I mean, I would love to. But you got to think Harrison Ford was born in 1942. So right now he's going to be 80 in 2022. So he's, that last movie, he was in his middle 60s. You know, yeah. and, and God bless him. You think about the physicality. You know, he's he's 38 in yeah. Raiders. So he's pushing 50 when he's doing Last Crusade. And then, you know, when he's Jack Ryan and he's doing all this physicality. Hold on. Plus, you know, he was just on this, that Star Wars Force Awakens and, like, broke his leg Yeah, the or doors something. shut on him. He's having all these kind of issues. And, I mean, you know, he crashed a plane a couple of years ago. He was fine. I remember when that was breaking news. He, he, he crashed, landed on a golf course, a period plane, got up, bleeding out. He's like, I'm sorry about your golf course. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he practices what he preaches. He goes, builds houses and stuff. You know what I mean? I remember years ago in the 90s, like, there was a kid lost in the woods like a kid like a boy scout he found the kid with I, a helicopter i remember that and, and, and it's like all of a sudden you're a it's harrison ford's indiana jones is freaking saving you come on kid you know and and from when that day we met him and he threw me the quarter he always seems like a great guy i mean he's a no-nonsense guy yeah you yeah. know uh i'm glad that he <clears> saw <throat> the humor and the our our little in your in yeah your <laughs> joke because uh, because i think sometimes he is a no-nonsense guy where he get, he'll get annoyed much like us like we talked about salone in the past where he may get annoyed with the fandom of hey you know you're being too too much for me you know especially going into the new star wars and people asking about han solo and all that there's that you ever see that really funny jimmy kimball bit where they're asking him questions and he can't talk about it and then you have chewbacca stand up 
No. You, I you, oh, my that. God. Okay, we're going to put a link into this about that. It it's absolutely hilarious because you start saying, like, fuck you. He's like, that was my wife. He's yelling at you, fuck. It's very funny. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. What else? This is it, right? This is the <sighs> third anniversary. Yeah. Now, we go for three more. Yeah, we'll see how long. We're going to go for maybe one more. <laughs> We'll see how long it, that we can uh, get going with this keep and keep it going. It going. And uh, please spread the word, people. Yeah. Uh, please, not that you haven't been. But, no, but you we know, appreciate continue. It. Continue, please, if you haven't yet, and you're a fan or not fan, but a listener of the show, and you enjoy it, please, uh, if you have a few minutes, take the time to rate and review us on iTunes because that will help uh, make it more visible to other potential listeners that like to listen to podcasts, movie podcasts. And uh, you can, of course, always find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Sat Sleepovers. And uh, we're on Facebook, we're on iTunes, we're on all kinds of stuff. So uh, you can listen to the show on iTunes and Stitcher and on our website where we have lots of extras. Yep. And uh, in join and the community on Facebook. And uh, I think we can safely say that we're now out of the summer. Yes, and we and of 2017. And we got a, we have a great fall into Christmas holiday lineup. Great fall so, lineup. <laughs> yeah, so we can't wait, and uh, you know we'll see you in two weeks. And thank you for being along with us on the journey. We hope you like what you've been hearing, and we hope you like what you're gonna be hearing. Later. <laughs> <laughs>